she doesn't do the thing that villains often do where it's like, it was for your own good or whatever. She's like, no, honestly, like, I lost my fucking mind and tried to kill my child and I regret that deeply. <laughs> like, that was fucked up. And I apologize. But now we can be together. And then he's like, no, no, no. Sorry, evil mom. Like, we're not going to do that. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today for the season two premiere of Cerebro is comics critic Vishal Gulapali, an editor at Comics XF and Comic Book Herald. Vishal, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm here in LA. I'm at the uh, same... Airbnb I was at last time I was in LA where the Wi-Fi is a little dubious. Okay. So I am seated outside on the patio. If you hear any horrible birds, there's like hawks and things overhead. Oh no. You know, don't worry. I'll try to get rid of that in post. I'm excited. I'm excited to be back. This is the first episode, obviously, of the new season. It felt really, really crazy to take a break mm-hmm. after not doing that for a year. But I feel good about doing it. The future seasons, rather than 50 episodes, are going to be 25 because I do need. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So to get into the backstory, we were introduced by Ritesh Babu. Yes. Who I reached out to ages ago because I haven't really been in the fandom in a long time. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't familiar with a lot of the critics these days and so I read his stuff and I thought it was really incisive and I was like hey do you want to come on my show and of course what I didn't realize was that famously as I now know Ritesh doesn't like the X-Men very much (laughs) so he suggested that I contact you instead and you said you wanted to do Cable which is a character I have been excited to do on this show but also dreading Writing the character file for this episode in publication order for this character truly destroyed my mind. Like, I'm not sure I will ever recover completely from just, like, looking at the complete Marvel reading order and just being like, all right, here's where this Ascani thing happens. Like, here's where this flashback is. So bear with me when we get there, because it may be a hot-ass mess. Can't wait. Cable is also the character I wanted to do for the season two premiere because in the season one premiere on Betsy Braddock, I say that the reason I chose Betsy to go first, it was threefold really. It was like, she's one of my favorite characters. The person currently writing her wants to come do the show. And she's about as difficult a character as you can get in terms of tracking her publications so i figured if the newbie to the x-men can absorb a betsy braddock episode they're in pretty good shape for anything that's going to follow that but i did note in that first episode the only one that i thought might be worse or maybe it was in the second episode i said this whichever one it was i said the only character i can imagine would be more of just like jumping into a cold pool with no context than betsy is cable yes so it felt appropriate to begin the new season with Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, a.k.a. Nathan Dayspring, the Ascani son. There's a lot going on. We'll get into it. Don't worry about it right now. 
But first, before we do some business. So as I said in the season one finale on Charles Xavier with Spencer Ackerman, nothing is changing in season two of Cerebro, except that there are going to be ads around the character file. If you would like an ad-free experience for $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast, you will get an ad-free episode every time an episode goes up. I'm sending out an ad-free version to the patrons. You also get two bonus episodes each month, so not a bad deal, right? Otherwise, they should hopefully be inobtrusive. I'm still figuring out how the hell it works, so... In this episode, you may hear the same ad twice. You may hear multiple ads. You may hear one ad and then just hear X-Men, X-Men, like four times in a row. I don't know. We're going to see what happens, and it's going to be an ongoing experiment as I attempt to understand the world of advertising on a podcast. Other business, I'm still open to questions on following characters Skin, Angela Espinosa from Generation X. I'll be joined by Marvel writer Terry Bloss for that. Siren, Teresa Cassidy. I'll be joined by friend of the pod, Valentine Smith. And Celine, the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club, lately the Black Priestess of X-Corp, who I will be covering with returning guest Alex Abad-Santos. That's going to be a, a real banger. I'm excited about it. We're just going to get real silly. Yeah. Another announcement, though, because I didn't have this fully nailed down when the finale went out, so I wasn't able to say it in that episode, but Cerebro Halloween is so spooky, it's going to continue into November. The first week of November, I will be joined for the long-awaited episode on Ilyana Rasputina magic by Marvel writer Leah Williams. If you have questions for Leah or me about magic, please send those in as well to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. I am really excited about this one. People go, why haven't you had a magic episode? I'm like, because I have a specific guest in mind and she's busy. Sometimes there is a method to my madness, I assure you. With all of that business out of the way... Vishal, I'd love to hear a little bit about why you wanted to talk about Cable and then talk about your origin story with the X-Men. Okay, so I'll go in reverse order. I'll talk about the origin story. Yeah, that's story. fine. Start with yourself yeah. and then we'll get to Cable. Yeah. That was counterintuitive. <laughs> I kind of got into comics towards the end of high school, beginning of college for me which was shockingly recent for a lot of people in comics, apparently. After I invited you, I found out that you are shockingly young, which I didn't anticipate. When was this, your Um, years? I would have just started getting into, like, properly ongoing comics, not reading, you know, large backlogs of, like, Silver Age stuff. In 2016, it was all new, all different Marvel and DC Rebirth. I love that for you. I'm just skeletonizing like I drank from the wrong grail at the end of Indiana Jones. Yeah, I've tended to have that um, effect on people since I started getting into comics criticism. It's not ideal, but unfortunately that is, I, I mean, I got, there was that tweet the other day that was like 10 years ago today, Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe came out. Oh, I don't I like that. wanted to crawl into a grave and just like be yeah i don't, I, I don't even ashes like to that. ashes on that one no it's, yeah that's that's dark that's dark um well you were what like 11 so you know <laughs> 14 but like, yeah god god well i'm thrilled to have you here even <laughs> if you are a constant reminder of my own inevitable encroaching mortality so you got into this stuff around 2016 not the most 
celebrated era of the X-Men. No, I didn't read X-Men for a while, actually. So I got into it. I was mostly a DC guy at first, actually. I read, you know, mm-hmm. the Batmans, the uh, the Flash, mm-hmm. Green Lantern. And I got into all this stuff. And famously, I guess, at this point in comics criticism, I got into Nick Spencer's Captain America, which, as you know, has a whole bunch of discourse around it that I it sure does. did not yeah. enjoy and still don't enjoy. I like Spider-Man. I can't say I really liked what was happening with Spider-Man at that specific moment in time, but as I think most people are when they start reading comics, you don't really notice quality right away. You're just like, ha, I like that character. Right. I like Peter Parker. I like Miles Morales. They're in comic books. I'll read them. So, you know, I was reading those characters. I would read all new, all different Avengers, which again, not a very beloved book, but it had all these new young characters who I thought were really cool. And I wanted to see more of them. So a thing that my friends know about me is that I get really like obsessive when it comes to consuming media. I will like just blitz through things and it'll just be on a whim. I'll be like, oh, I wonder why people like this thing. Let me consume all (laughs) of it really quick. In high school, I did this for Doctor Who at the time. I watched all of it. I like caught up to Matt Smith's era and I was like, oh, I understand why everyone likes this in like a month. Sure. And then it all kind of went to ride. <laughs> it really did. Yeah. I I have since like I stopped watching it after some season and I tried to be like, all right, I'm going to rewatch the whole thing. I'm going to try and get back mm-hmm. into it last year. I got to the exact episode that I quit on last time and I was like, this is really good. And I never continued because I just didn't feel like it. I, it lost whatever momentum. Yeah, I came in with Matt Smith on that show because everybody was talking about it. And I had just never been able to get into David Tennant on that mm-hmm. show. And it's no insult to him. Like, I've liked him a lot in other things. I thought he was brilliant in the Netflix Jessica Jones, et cetera, et cetera. But something about his performance as the doctor was like, I don't know, it just didn't work for me. So I tried again with Matt Smith and I watched that first series he did. And then I was really into River Song, the Alex Kingston character. And then that character's storyline just truly drives off a cliff i believe i stopped watching around the episode called let's kill hitler ah which was not my favorite Mm -hmm. episode of all time it's a very divisive season (laughs) especially that episode everyone just kind of whether or not you like the season depends on whether or not you like that episode. And right, I loved that makes it. Sense. Most of my friends <laughs> did not. So I just stuck with it. And then eventually I stopped. Listen, it takes a village. It does. And uh, this is not a Doctor Who podcast. It's not. That was my very brief Doctor Who experiment. Yeah. So beyond Doctor Who. So yeah, with X-Men, it was very much the same thing. One day I was just like, Everyone likes the X-Men. They have this cult following. A fandom that honestly, not being a part of, I found very Mm -hmm. uninviting. It was like, I would be like, I don't really get what's going on here. And then you get a bunch of people screaming that Cyclops was right or Cyclops, blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, this was that era (laughs) when he was recently departed and no one knew why. So before I started like going into the backlog, which I eventually did, my first like ongoing X-Men comic was Death of X. God, okay. I thought Death of X was interesting because I thought the ending that Cyclops was dead the whole time was cool. And then I read Inhumans versus X-Men and I said, oh no. Oh no. 
is right. Death of X in isolation, I think, is a pretty good comic. I don't like the reveal because I'm just generally opposed to like the character assassination of Emma yeah. in that period. Yeah. Since then, I've definitely turned around. On yeah. It. But Death of X itself, in isolation, if it was an Elseworld, I would mm-hmm. think was a great comic. Inhumans versus X-Men is not yeah a great comic i don't think anybody who worked on it would say that it is you know yeah i think they've even gone on record as saying it was a mess so whoops you know <laughs> and i have to say that does go a long way for me like they can't all be winners and when yeah. you just say you know they can't all be winners like yeah that goes a long way for me honestly so yeah after inhumans versus x-men i was basically like all right these characters have this really hardcore following there has to be something in there there has to be something good, yeah. right? So yeah. <laughs> I went all the way back to Giant Size X-Men number one, and I was like, you know what? That's it. I'm going to read all of it. And around the time I actually decided to do this, like I had like finished whatever else I was doing and like had the free time to read this, was not when it started, but when the X-Men Disassembled Uncanny Revival was announced. Mm-hmm. That was announced, and I was like, perfect. That's three months away. That's the perfect deadline for this. And I didn't 100% catch up by then, but I blitzed through Claremont. Three months is <laughs> it not was, a very long stretch of time yeah, to read 50 years of content. It was actually close. I blitzed through uh, Claremont's Uncanny X-Men and the New Mutants and X-Factor that went along with it Yeah, in like maybe two months. And then I made it to the Age of Apocalypse, skipping Excalibur, but reading pretty much everything else. And then I skipped to Grant Morrison's, read like the majority of what came out since then, and managed to catch up right around time for Rosenberg's Uncanny to start, which I think Matt Rosenberg has written many good comics. I think he's a great writer. Again, they can't all be winners, right? I think that there's stuff in that run that really is interesting. It's just also, there's a lot of stuff in it that I don't care for, Mm -hmm. you know? The first issue I really liked, specifically Cyclops and Logan's big reunion, perfect. Mm -hmm. I thought, I was like, okay, he's got it. And just, it didn't go a way that I wanted it to for the rest of the Mm -hmm. series. I think the fact that it was we didn't know this at the time, but that it was basically like a lame duck administration before the big relaunch wasn't helpful because I think, I mean, honestly, it just got exhausting how many characters he would kill off in this very rapid, strange succession. And now, of course, it makes a lot more sense because we knew that they were all coming back, which I assumed that some kind of reset was coming, but at the time it got kind of harrowing to read, you know? Yeah. In any case, you said skipping Excalibur and I like, I felt like a deep, pain in my heart because that's the book that got me into into yeah it's more than anything else it's not one that's i haven't read alan davis's run i need to like Mm -hmm. stress that but claremont's run ranged from fun issues to kind of a slog at times for me like the cross time fair enough it's not for everybody for sure i've heard davis's run is generally better and i really do want to read it but it's a while away right now it's also it's brief so you know i think you can if you read all of Claremont in two months, you can read that Davis run in about 12 hours, probably. <laughs> so yeah, I think that Excalibur has a very specific kind of sensibility and sense of humor. And if it's not your thing, it's just not your thing, yeah. basically, is the, yeah. is the vibe I've gotten. It just, made me, it just made me sad to hear that because I love it so much. What was my thing as I read through all this was the New Mutants, which, you know, is 
almost. I mean, that book's fucking thing. great. Yeah, I don't know anybody. Yeah, amazing. I don't know anybody who doesn't like that book. Yeah, and you know, Cannonball, Sunspot, Magic, mm-hmm. all of them. Like, obviously, all of them. But like those three especially were my favorites. And I didn't particularly love Louise Simonson's run at the time mm-hmm. when I first read it. I've turned around a little bit. I'm still mostly like I don't think I'll collect it, but I don't have a grudge against it that I used to. My feeling on that run is that Louise Simonson agreed to do four issues while Claremont was launching Wolverine and Excalibur. And then he was like, actually, can you just keep going? Because I have too many books. And I think that it took her some time to get like the vibe that she wanted, you know? I think it's mostly remembered, unfortunately, for like the bird brain and Gossamer (laughs) arcs. Whereas I think that the Inferno issues that she does are some of the best New Mutants issues ever. So it's just like, it's a mixed bag for me. I think that the, and this could be apocryphal, but there's a general understanding that there was a bit of an editorial mandate to age them down a little because Claremont had made them feel much older than they were supposed to be by the end of his run. Yeah, And I think that that definitely reads abrupt, especially when you put Blevins into the mix whose style is already so cartoony and makes everyone look very young, right? Yeah, it was a rough transition. It's a rough transition. It's like, it really is like just a hard right turn. You're like, where did we go? What happened to the book? But keeping in my, you know, general trend of liking things that a lot of people don't like, when Rob Liefeld came on, for whatever reason, I don't think his art's good. I need to like stress this. Rob Liefeld we know how he is as a person. I don't particularly like his art. I think his early art on New Mutants and the beginning of X-Force is actually pretty good. There's a reason he became such a star. He brought a unique energy to the book that wasn't there before. Like, honestly, I'm not going to compare him to Bill Sienkiewicz because that's, no. Well, that's just yeah. apples and oranges. Yeah. It doesn't really make but sense. You know? he brought an energy and uniqueness to the book that I thought wasn't there since Sienkiewicz stopped drawing it. And I was like, I want more of this. Like, everyone's posed funnily. Everyone's really ugly. But they feel like they're energized. It's kinetic. Yeah. That style. Like, and that's sort of the image artists of that time. Like, you know, who, the ones who would become the image yeah. artists. Liefeld, Lee, Potasio, all those guys. They had a very kinetic style. It is not my favorite because I don't like the, like, Jim Lee posing thing yeah. where it's like here I am in a pose that's not my favorite thing it's just a personal aesthetic thing mm-hmm. Liefeld I do think when his anatomy isn't out of control the kinetic movement is actually very strong yeah and I you know when I was a kid and I had like the New Mutants to X-Force transition period in trade I was like I like this it's good you know like it was an interesting new direction for the characters and I agree that that book gets kind of bogged down after Inferno. Like, all of the stuff where Danny gets written out is, like, messy. Yeah. It really is Cable coming into the picture that revitalizes the book. Exactly. So, yeah, the big thing for me was I loved when Magneto took over as headmaster of the New Mutants because, one, it was perfect for Magneto, just the conflict of him trying to be a good mentor while having Mm -hmm. his own ideals. Incredible. But also just... The new mutants coming to understand that this person who isn't Xavier and who would be Xavier's enemy was someone worth learning from. I love that. Mm -hmm. And then Cable comes in and it's kind of the same thing, except 
to me, it's even better because the way Wheezy writes Cable, I think no one has ever written him the same way. And I think it's perfect because when people leave the team, Cable says, you're old enough to decide what you want. I, I'm not going to try and stop you. I trust you to make the right decision for yourself. When Sunspot is furious and his father has just died and he's like, I'm leaving, Cable's like, if that's what you have to do. And Sunspot's mad because he wants someone to tell him no. Right. They're waiting for someone like Charles Xavier to tell them that they're still children. Because when you're at that age, you're like, I'm independent, mom or dad or whoever your guardian is. But you also are looking a little bit for the pushback because it's scary to be actually responsible for yourself. What's fascinating about Cable is that he treats them like adults from the moment he meets them. And as we get more of his backstory in the future, that makes sense because he had to grow up very fast. He was a soldier from an early age. So it makes sense that the Ascani son would view these teenagers as being perfectly viable adults who could make their own decisions because he was on his own from the age of 12. Yeah. So I basically fell in love with Cable as a character right away. I was like, this guy's great. And then when they made the switch to X-Force with Nicieza on board, I was like, this is incredible. Nicieza's last issue on New Mutants, he has Sunspot when he's saying goodbye to Cannonball. He says that Magnum's in a rerun, life goes on. And I was like, all right, it's really good. this guy understands these characters. I'm on board. Let's see what happens. And the redesigns for X-Force were great. Like, I think Capullo does them better when he eventually comes on. Yes. But giving goggles to Cannonball, absolutely love it. It is a yeah. hallmark of the character now. Mm -hmm. Everyone looked different from the X-Men, who, to me, had gotten a little boring after the Outback era. I didn't care for the Muir Island saga, and I was ready to be done with the X-Men. I stayed on, obviously, because it's X-Men. Yeah. But when the 90s shift happened... X-Force was where all my attention was. Well, I would say of those books that were coming out at that time, the ones that are, I would say, almost objectively the best are X-Force under Nicieza, the Davis run on Excalibur that's mm -hmm. very brief, and the Peter David X-Factor yes. run, the first one. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that run, yeah. It's good. Those books all were pretty strong, which is why when you get to Executioner's Song, which is obviously a big cable story, it feels like the line is kind of firing on all cylinders. Yes. All of these characters are in a good position in the story. You can tell, actually, that there's some of the architecture there of the Mutant Wars storyline that Claremont and Simonson had been building to for a long time. How much is yeah. still there is something we don't know. But just the idea that these teams each have their own mandate now and are going to approach the political question differently and are therefore going to come into conflict with each other. That was an interesting status quo for the X-Men to have X-Factor be government shills, the X-Men be Xavier's assimilation force, and yeah. X-Force be no, actually, we're going to do acts of terrorism if we have to, to alert people to what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. It's funny. I think if I were a few years older, I would have been very into that era. But by 1995, I'm only seven. Okay. So, like, when I was becoming really cognizant of, like, the current books, as opposed to just what my dad was giving me in collections and looking through his old issues in the attic, 
the books that were like current when I'm like, you know, eight or nine, it's post age of apocalypse, late nineties. And I was just fully like, I'm going to stay in the eighties where it's safe, you know, like that was sort of my, but I think if I, I get why that nineties sea change in the early nineties is such an iconic moment for people is the peak of the popularity. I get it. Yeah. I just personally prefer the eighties art aesthetic and the storytelling of that time. The Outback era is my favorite X-Men team to this day. Yeah. It's far too short. It is far too short. When I went and reread it, I was like, I was convinced that it was like 50 issues or something. It's like it's not, a year yeah. at most. Like it was double shipping too. So it oh, like goes yeah. by faster than you think it would because you think about like Fall of the Mutants is 1988 mm-hmm. and at the end of 1988 is Inferno. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't consider that it was double shipping. Yeah, it's double shipped. Yeah. So like I'm born in March 1988, in the final month of Fall of the Mutants, when the X-Men sacrificed themselves in Dallas with Madeline Pryor and all of that. Mm-hmm. Then before I am one year old, Madeline has become the Goblin <laughs> Queen because it's all double shipping. So it's two issues every month, which is wow. crazy. I don't know how Claremont did that frankly, when he was writing additional books on top of that. It's truly remarkable that he was able to do that. You know, writing one monthly title is a difficult thing to do. It is, yeah. Much less a title that comes out twice a month and then like three other titles. That's crazy. So you followed Cable into the Niciesa X-Force. The Niciesa Capullo is probably my favorite bit there. Yeah, I would call that my favorite X-Book, honestly. Fair. It's pretty strong. I mean, I loved it when I did get to it eventually because Greg Capullo draws some of the hottest (laughs) men that have ever appeared on the pages of a comic, particularly his version of Cable. Yes, is so sexy that it's like mind, but because if you started reading with the Liefeld cable, who is not sexy, it's like a very abrupt transition. There's just a panel that I always share. And I'm like, I know that they keep saying that cable and cannonball have a father son relationship. However, this panel, (laughs) it's the one where Sam is like doe eyed looking up at cable. He has like his, he's like pursed his lips. They're in their little like cleavagey tops and Cable goes, what's it going to take for you to trust me, kid? Or something like that. And his eyes like flashing and he's like grinning and kind of says, give me a good enough reason to, sir. And I'm like, God, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, much in the way that like Alan Davis and John Burns work in the stuff I was reading that was earlier was like very beefcakey in a way that I wasn't prepared for. I think yeah. as like a tiny gay child. That Greg Capullo Cable era is certainly my affection for Cable, I think, comes out of how hot he looks in those comics and in Marvel versus Capcom 2, where I thought he was very sexy for whatever reason. That's probably before your time, so don't worry about it. That was on the Sega Dreamcast. Oh, boy. Yeah, I think it was, but also I'm not a fighting (laughs) game guy, so. Oh, fair. No, that's fair. That's fair. I'm a fighting game gay. That is a, a thing for me. My thing with Cable is that I never really read the solos. I, okay, so much like how I did this Blitz with X-Men, when Mm -hmm. we confirmed that I was going to be doing Cable, I read pretty much every single appearance he has on Marvel Unlimited. That's amazing, because there's a lot of them. There's so many. And like you said at the beginning, I think my brain's a little fried from it. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of 
the majority of his solo comics. Honestly, like straight up until the Swierzynski run, the Messiah era stuff. See, and I'm not crazy about that. <laughs> I can't tell if I like that run because it's so much better than all the cable solo comics before mm-hmm. it. Or I think I do also genuinely like enjoy a decent amount of it, even if the art's not great at mo- most times. Sometimes while personally, I I mean, my thing with that run is, first of all, I don't like the wife that they introduced yeah, in the fridge. That's in the first not 10 good. Issues. That annoys me. But also, because that's so rare in X-Men comics. Mm-hmm. You don't see that very often. And it annoys me when they go to And also wife. Hope's but named after her. I, that's weird. It's weird. It's weird. Just like have the baby be named Hope. You yeah. don't need, like she's already the Messiah. Just name her Hope. Yeah. Like it's symbolic. <laughs> But my real issue with it is the way that Bishop is written in that book, I think, is just atrocious. And we've never recovered from it. Like, Sam Humphreys does his best to try and put some resolution in there. It doesn't work. Doesn't work. It ends with Hope saying, I still hate you. And then they just kind of interact after that. Right. And now we just have to accept on Krakoa that Bishop's the Bishop from the 90s and aughts. And listen, sometimes that's the way to go when a character is that fucked up. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that the fact that we're just not talking about Inhumans versus X-Men, as far as Emma's concerned, is a good thing. Similarly, I think that Bishop's genocide era in the future is just not something we really need to dig deep into. Mm-hmm. I think the optics of it are just really bad. Oh, it's awful. I think that having someone be that villain works, but why Bishop? It should be Trevor Fitzroy. Yes, oh my or God. Or someone. Yeah. Like, there's no... Like, first of all, Trevor Fitzroy is from Bishop's timeline. Like, you could have just had it be Fitzroy. There's no reason for it not just to be Just have it be Nimrod if you really need it to be someone recognizable. Like... Yeah, well, and what I'm saying is, like, Fitzroy actually in the 90s was, like, a big deal villain. We don't think of him that way now because he's, like... Yeah, that must have been the era I didn't read. I skipped from Age of Apocalypse to Morrison, so just Operation Zero Tolerance, all of that. Yeah, did you read X-Man? No. No. Absolutely (laughs) not. Good choice. But he's in the Hellfire Club in that. He he also, though, like, he kills the Hellions in the early 90s. Oh, he did upstarts. that. Okay. Yeah, it's like, an, he's he's in the upstarts moment with Fenris and Shinobi Shaw mm-hmm. and those people. Sienna Blaze. Yeah. Fabian Cortez. It's like their moment. Most of them are not super memorable characters <laughs> in terms of, like, follow through. I think that Fenris has mostly persisted because they're so disgusting that it's just, like, yeah. funny to use Fenris in, like, do you need a truly execrable villain? Like, these Nazi siblings who fuck each other. Sure, throw them in there. Yeah, and Fabian Cortez for a similar reason. He's just so goddamn pathetic. But honestly, I couldn't remember anything he had done before Krakoa, in, like, in a long time. Like, when the sword cover first <laughs> leaked... Because that one did leak on social media, unfortunately. Yeah. All of the characters, including like Wizkid, which is like a real pull, who hadn't been seen in like ages. Everybody was like, here's who all these characters are. And we all recognized them. And then it was like, who the fuck is that guy? (laughs) People were speculating maybe it was Adam X. Some people thought it might have been a Banshee redesign. Yeah, like because it could have, it was like a kind of blonde, but a little strawberry. It's like, who could this be? And Fabian Cortez in the 90s was really buff and had like, really ginger hair the way that he does in way of X. yeah so it's a great redesign don't get me wrong but he was a character who i think also just like did not really survive the 90s i feel like exodus kind of took his place i really enjoyed him in the 90s though honestly just i love that he was like pretending to be hearing magneto's voice and making it all up because oh, he was yeah. a power hungry piece of shit i was like yeah the fact that he doesn't believe in anything i love this 
He's absolutely star. I mean, he's literally just yeah. he's literally Starscream. Yeah. And I'm not even a Transformers guy, and I know that. <laughs> like, you know, like I understood that reference because that's like such a trope. To go back, Bishop, just having the black character, because at this point mm-hmm. he is still a black character. The Aboriginal backstory is not. I, I'm still doing research on this because eventually I have to get to the Bishop episode, and I am so confused it's... as to the history of Bishop's, like, ethnic deal. Yeah, it's, so I know from the beginning, Portasio envisioned him as Filipino because he was kind of a self At first, yeah, right. But I think they do just, like, write him as Black, and the writers will probably... They do. Yeah. yeah. It's bizarre. And when they draw him as Black, too, yeah. like, very clearly. And it was the era where they finally drew Black characters with Black facial features, so he definitely, like, suddenly Storm doesn't look like a white lady with, like, a marker, <laughs> you know? They did it with him, too, around that extreme X-Men era. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's Swarzynski. I'm, I'm saying that wrong. Swarzynski? I believe it's the same guy, the Polish name guy. Sorry if you're listening, Dwayne. I think that it's also him, isn't it, who writes The Life and Times of Lucas Bishop, which retcons the backstory. But I think it's because Claremont establishes he's Australian Aboriginal in extreme. Okay. Maybe. I don't... Here's the point. I have a lot of reading. (laughs) Regardless... To the writers, and certainly to the readers, Bishop is the most prominent black male X-Man. Yes. And I've talked about how at some point they're going to need to, like, thread that needle somehow because it's awkward that he isn't, technically, as far as we know right now. So, like, they need to fix that in some way. Mm -hmm. But the point is, to have that character be a traitor, to begin with, not ideal. I get that the twist of Bishop being the traitor in Messiah Complex is appealing because Bishop came to the past to root out the traitor in the X-Men. So if the traitor in the X-Men, it turns out, is Bishop, there's an appealing synchronicity to that in terms of the overarching narrative. I like it in Messiah Complex, the idea that this Messiah is what creates the best parts of Cable's future, and it turns out is also what creates the worst parts of Bishop's future. The implication potentially even being that Bishop's future is earlier in Cable's Ascani timeline, but is the same timeline. It's not 100% clear what is being implied there, but it's possible that basically Bishop is someone from the middle of the Holocaust and Cable is someone from a thousand years after the Holocaust who has seen the rebuilding and is like, it was all worth it in the end. And Bishop's like, not really if you witnessed the Holocaust, which I did, right? So... It's a compelling story. My problem is that the second he follows them into the future, he just fully goes crazy. No, yeah, they actively drop the word genocide, I'm pretty sure. like, Well, he commits genocide several times. It's horrendous. He uses nuclear weapons, destroys most of the Earth in the future, right? He's Mm -hmm. like chasing them through the timeline. He basically experiences this delusion that because the timeline is going to be altered once he succeeds, none of the people he's killing matter. And I just don't buy that as an evolution of Bishop's character. And this is not a Bishop episode, but I don't know. I don't like that they have the black man chasing the white baby through time, trying to kill her. Mm -hmm. I think that's a bad choice. Yeah. And then I also just really think, I mean, he was one of the main X-Men for my whole adolescence. You have to remember, by the time Messiah Complex rolls around, I'm almost out of college. Yeah. Well, he's a huge deal. Yeah. We all know Bishop. Right, the idea that Bishop's a bad guy to this extent. Because it's not like, you know, Cable's had his time as a bad guy mm-hmm. occasionally. Like, the Cy Spurrier Cable, which we'll <laughs> get to, which I think is really interesting, is a real bad guy. Yeah. X-Men characters can do that. I love Emma Frost. Like, you can go in and out. I love Betsy Braddock. She has had some real unfortunate years. Yeah. 
About 30 of them, in fact. <laughs> Bottom line is, Bishop is a character that it felt like they just destroyed completely. Like there was no... I mean, honestly, it was Scarlet Witch style. Like this character is now broken and no one can fix it. Yeah. I think that with Bishop, the only choice that they had was to just start ignoring it and pretending it never happened because there's no real road home. So that's my issue with that with that series. Mm-hmm. I agree that the solos before that are not great. I think Fabian's Cable and Deadpool is pretty good, but I hate Deadpool. Yeah, That's so my issue. I, I have problems with it just be 90% because of Deadpool. And then also there's just large stretches where I'm like, wait, what? Like Cable suddenly like loses his powers and they never really say why. And I'm like, what's happening here? I Was it M-Day? Was it something else? I still don't know, honestly. Um, My recollection is that it had to do with the techno-organic virus resurging in his body and then he like merged his genetic code with Deadpool's briefly and then we'll get into this in the character file because it does not matter do not worry about it it. but (laughs) Cable's powers are something that have fluctuated a lot over time because like when he's introduced obviously he's not supposed to be Nathan Christopher Summers so he just has like vague telekinesis and otherwise is the Terminator, Mm -hmm. right? And then once it's revealed that he is Scott and Madeline's child and has Gene's telepathic DNA, they retcon in basically that his telepathy got like burned out or Mm -hmm. something and then it comes back after Age of Apocalypse when he cures Rainfire. Yeah. Because they had fired Fabian and they're like, we're wrapping this up. Then he's like a telepath, but they can never decide how powerful he is. The real problem with Cable is that the mutant messiah thing, the Ascani son thing, sort of starts with him, right? Like yes. he is the eugenic project that Mr. Sinister has been working on for centuries. Mm-hmm. He is theoretically the peak mutant. Now, I don't mind the fact that that isn't true necessarily because... Mr. Sinister is a eugenicist, and if he's not actually right about everything, <laughs> that's okay with me. But given all of the prophecies and whatnot, it's a little weird that he's not Nate Gray, right? That he's like not this Omega level hero. And the way that they have justified that is by saying that the techno organic virus inhibits his yeah. powers. But since they're constantly curing that, then giving it back to him, it just can't. It's the rogue problem. It's exactly the rogue problem. It's that, here's the thing, Cable can't progress too much because everybody knows him as the guy with the metal parts. Yep. So you can't have him fix that because then we won't recognize him anymore. Mm -hmm. It's for the same reason that Cyclops can never get full control over his power, and they've flirted with that several times as well, but we just can't have it because then that's just a white guy. Like, there's no, (laughs) you know, like, that's just a guy with brown hair. There's no identifying characteristic if he's not wearing the visor. Yeah. Cable, I think, falls into that trap a lot. It's also, though, that he doesn't need the powers, right? Like, he's a perfectly acceptable superhero just with the power of gun. Yeah, that's something that worked for me really well. Like, in the New Mutant stuff early on when he's having them do Danger Room exercises, I think there's an issue where they're like, this is really hard, but if you're making us do it, then you should be able to do it. And he does it all by himself. Effortlessly, right. This is a guy who we know through retcons was operating on a little bit of telekinesis and his training. Mm -hmm. And he was just that good. And I was like, something that I just really love in fiction in general is characters who 
are incredibly good at what they do. I'm a little less interested in the like, I need to learn how to use my powers. I love characters who are like, I know how to use my goddamn powers. I just need to do something interesting with them. I like the experts, the people who've mm-hmm. reached the peak of their performance and now just need good antagonists against that. I think that's one of the things that's fun about the current X-Men run, the Duggan yes. Laroth run is yeah. that like Jean Grey and Cyclops and Polaris and Rogue all know what they're doing really profoundly. Sunfire knew what he was doing when he was introduced in the 60s, yes. right? So like these are very competent characters and Laura and Sync are two of the more competent young mutants in part because Sync's power is intuitive, right? Yes. Like it provides that knowledge for him. So I think that what's been really fun about those first several issues, three just came out as we're talking. As we're recording this, the week that just happened was Onslaught Revelation, X-Corp 5, and X-Men 3. Yes. So that's where we're at, like in the current present moment as you're hearing this about a week later. So there you go. But yeah, one thing that's been nice is that it's more about creative applications of the powers. And I like when it's very clear, Monty, I like when people talk in the battle about what they're doing and like yeah. what their power is doing. And Jerry has them doing a lot of that where it's like, you know, Sink's like, don't worry, I'll borrow your power to do this. And then Lorna's like, all right, I'm altering the magnetic field to do X, Y, Z. And I love that. Shit. Yeah, it's that great. Is fun. I think that that is the kind of field leader that Cable often is in that X-Force material. Like he's encouraging them to think in practical ways about applications of their power. Magneto, because he was so lost in terms of like, what do I do with these children? Never really did that. You know, like it wasn't, that wasn't the, the focus. And Charles is always sort of more, condescending than cable is cable is just sort of like keep up with me or don't yeah and that's something another reason why he worked for me so well in new mutants and eventually x-forces charles and magneto are both training these students to achieve what is their dreams and cable is training them for what he knows is his reality right like cable's seen the future and it's bad babes like it's not good yeah He needs to prepare these kids because the only way that Apocalypse gets stopped, because this is his goal at the beginning, Mm -hmm. the mutants of the late 20th century have to be really on their fucking game, right? Because that's when the 12 are supposed to arise. And if they don't, we're in a lot of fucking trouble because that is what leads to New Canaan and all of this horrible stuff in his clan chosen Ascani future, which he's trying to avert. The thing that's interesting about Cable, and this is why I get the appeal of Bishop as a dark mirror of this in that later run, is that all that Cable is trying to do is avert the future where he grew up. Yes, it works really well. Yeah, and by doing that, he is damning all of his friends and loved ones from that future timeline, theoretically, to never exist, right? Or to Mm -hmm. exist in very different forms. So it's tragic, right? It's like, to save the future, I have to make sure the world that I was in, where I loved Alia and we had a child and all of that, like, never comes to pass. Yeah, they... Claremont does that with Rachel early on. When very, very well, like, yes. She doesn't realize it, I think, when she does it. She, well, like, she has that revelation when she finds out Maddie's pregnant with a boy, and she's like, oh, no. Something's wrong, yeah. Nathan, he knows from the beginning, 
I'm born, that's fine. But all of the people I love, all the people I know, I know they're not going to be coming back. I know my future isn't happening. And to me, it's still worth it. Yeah, and I think that that, while the 12 storyline is not good, I think that... The idea of it that Cable eradicates his own future. I mean, his, his own timeline is our present, right? Because mm-hmm. he was born in the present, but eradicates his home. Yes. And erases it from existence is a really great climax to that arc. I think it is unfortunate that in the time since we have seen versions of the Ascani timeline continue to exist. I think that that is a bummer. It is it would be so easy to only have them exist at earlier points in the, you know, Mm -hmm. like make it a paradox. But when it's like, oh, no, that timeline's still there. It's just a little different now. I'm like, and I get that like once Apocalypse comes back, which of course he always does, Mm -hmm. there's no reason that that, like the 12 is supposed to be the once and for all end of Apocalypse, but it obviously isn't because he's too popular a villain. It actually took him a while, didn't it? I want to say he didn't properly come back until the X-Men Black backups. Oh, no, he was, no, no, sorry, Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force. Even before that, he shows up right after the decimation. Does he? In the Milligan run. Oh, God, I never, I read the first issue of that, and it took place in India, and I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, that's fair. I would say that the representation of India in the X-Men franchise (laughs) has not been superb. Yeah. I think that that's something we can all agree on. Mm -hmm. I like Neil Shara. Wish he had a different name, but yeah. Yeah, Neil is not really... No, a... Neil's fine. I mean Thunderbird. Oh, well, the code name's horrendous. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was very pointed that when he showed up in X-Corp, it was like, he's not Thunderbird. <laughs> like, TBD what he'll be. Yeah. But right now, it's like, we're not doing that. Yeah, Neil is... I have enough friends named Neil where I'm like, okay, that's whatever. I'll... Sure. I know an Indian-American guy named Neil. I just didn't... Like, he's from, like, India. I was just like, is that a name that... Yeah, it's less common, but it does come up. I, it is a lot more common with Indian-Americans because parents are like, we don't want our kids to have to repeat... Their names every day right and i just assumed it was chris claremont not i mean we all know this about chris who i love dearly Mm -hmm. but like name research is not really his forte i did find out that the initial idea him agni which is the the sanskrit word for fire but unfortunately i don't think he realized it at the first planning is also the name of the hindu god deities so they were worried it would be like blasphemous and like personally i don't think it's blasphemous like but right. I understand shying away from it while they don't have Indian people in the office to clarify. Yeah, it's just that like then they had that character Indra, so it's like Ooh, what's the, yeah, you know, who's just purple. Yeah, so here's the thing: representation not great. Trinary, I think that character has potential, but there's work to be done yeah. for sure. Before her, it was really like Neil for a minute, Karima Shapandar, who I think is great, but who is obviously a very complicated <laughs> yeah. character in general, and is often evil so like that's not necessarily and then like haven and her brother monsoon who were super fun 90s villains but i don't know how uh representational of indian culture they really (laughs) are (laughs) um like if you told me they were you know from anywhere i would have been like yeah Mm -hmm. the cult lady she's fun you know it's not super there's also that acolyte named vindaloo which is not great no don't like that he has firepower it's not great (laughs) late 90s so you don't have to worry about it okay but yeah i mean i'd like to see more Mm -hmm. it is a part of the world that has become so important to global politics in terms of like economic power and stuff like that it feels remiss that we don't have a lot of that in the marvel universe 
So I'd like to see that change, and I, I think it will yeah. with time. But I completely get why that Peter Milligan issue would not have been your fave. Yeah, it's it's something where I'm not going. I will not like go on a whole rant about it too often. But just when I see India in a comic, if it's before 2010, I'm just not going to read it. It's a no thank. And you. if it's after, I'm still going to be a little. Mm, I don't know about that. Leery, yeah. right? Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. That's actually, I mean, my great regret is that she's not a mutant because it's from that era when like nobody was a mutant mm-hmm. anymore. But I love Dr. Faiza Hussein. Yeah, she is great. She's a great character and I just want her on Krakoa. I'm like, can't we just retcon it? She's like an Excalibur character. Yeah, similarly, I love Kamala Khan. Kamala Khan's also great. Yeah. There's more recent characters who I think are very, mm-hmm. very strong. But apart from Kamala, who obviously is like a sensation, it's very rare for a new character to take off yeah. to that extent. None of them have really had the the runway, I think, yeah. to like become really enduring characters. But yeah, I hope that changes. Neil's mm-hmm. hot. I think Trinary's fun when she gets to do stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's potential there. And we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I think now is maybe a good time for us to go into the Cerebro character file on Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, Nathan Dayspring, the Ascani son, etc. I will take you through Cable's entire publication history in publication order, not chronological story order. This uh, was a real labor of love, and I'm glad that I had a couple weeks off to futz with it. And then we will come back. I will talk to Vishal about his favorite cable stories, and then we will read questions from listeners like you. So stay tuned. Again, I don't know exactly what's going to go on with the ads here. We're all going to be surprised when we hit play, and I'm just going to hope that I did it correctly. But stay tuned, and we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. And now, Miss Candy Southern and me, your host, with a message from our sponsors. Long time no see, beautiful boys and groovy gals. The summer's just beginning, and I, for one... (laughs) Oh my, that one was a whopper. What's the matter, Candy? Sorry, Connor, old sport. My allergies are just the pits this year. I'm afraid any ad for me is going to sound like it was recorded underwater. Have you tried Astapro over-the-counter nasal spray? It's the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray and starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, delivering full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. I've had terrible allergies this year, which is a bummer when you record a podcast for a living, but Astapro has kept me sounding crystal clear. It's got your back and your nose. And thank heavens for that. If you've got allergies like me and Candy, get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. X-Men, X-Men. Nathan Christopher Charles Summers is the son of Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops, and his wife, Madeline Pryor. Created by Chris Claremont and Rick Leonardi, he was part of Claremont's plan to write Scott out of the series following the death of Jean Grey in the Dark Phoenix saga. Nathan makes his first appearance as an unnamed infant in the same issue where Storm defeats Cyclops in battle for formal leadership of the X-Men. Cable, the Ascani son, Nathan Dayspring, is a time-traveling cyborg soldier from the distant future who returns to the past to battle the time-traveling villain Strife and prepare for the 20th century awakening of the ancient mutant evil called Apocalypse. 
created by Rob Liefeld and Louise Simonson, Cable becomes a mentor to the New Mutants, quickly reshaping the team of former Xavier School students into a paramilitary group called X-Force. A retcon conceived by Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, and Bob Harris would later establish that Cable is a time-displaced Nathan Christopher Summers, who had been dispatched to the future to save his life. The retcon was smoothed over by writer Fabian Musiesa, who wrote both X-Force and a Cable solo. Writer Scott Lobdell then wrote flashback, or technically flash-forward, stories that established Cable's adolescence as Nathan Dayspring, the messianic figure called the Ascani Son. Still with me? This one's a doozy. Strap in. Baby Nathan is born at the Xavier Mansion in 1986's Uncanny X-Men 201, but won't be named on panel until the franchise-wide event Inferno a couple years later. Madeline Pryor Summers abruptly goes into labor and gives birth to Nathan alone in the mansion. The X-Men are away in Paris, attending the trial of Magneto. After her husband Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops, loses a sparring match with Aurora Monroe, a.k.a. Storm, Aurora claims official leadership of the X-Men once and for all, and Scott decides to retire to Alaska to focus on being a husband and father. One month later, in X-Factor No. 1 by Bob Layton and Butch Geese, Scott and Madeline argue when Scott receives a mysterious phone call from back in New York. Jean Grey has been discovered alive in a massive retcon establishing that Phoenix was an imposter, and Scott insists on going to see her without explaining himself to Maddie. Maddie, upset, shouts that if he walks out on her again, he shouldn't come back. He doesn't, until it's far too late. With Scott in New York leading the new X-Factor team, Madeline and her son are targeted by the mysterious villain Mr. Sinister, who dispatches his marauders to murder Maddie and kidnap the child. While Maddie survives, comatose, the marauders take the baby, and Sinister conspires to erase every trace of Maddie and Nathan's existence. As X-Factor continues under new writer Louise Simonson, Scott is led to believe that Madeline is dead and the baby is missing, and resumes his romantic relationship with Jean Grey. They're shocked when Madeline appears on television with the X-Men during the franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants. In the broadcast, Maddie implores Scott to find their son, then heroically sacrifices her life alongside the X-Men to stop the cosmic threat called the Adversary. A tip from the precognitive mutant Destiny directs Scott and Jean to the now-abandoned orphanage in Nebraska where Scott grew up. During a battle with the villains Nanny and the Orphan Maker, don't worry about them right now, Scott and Jean witness a host of demons descending on the orphanage to kidnap baby Nathan. This leads directly into the franchise-wide event Inferno, in which it's revealed that Madeline has lost her soul and gone crazy, becoming the corrupt Goblin Queen, a sorceress bent on demonic invasion. It's here where we learn the baby's name, as his parents argue about it. Scott calls him Christopher, but Madeline insists his name is Nathan. She exults in recalling that Scott hates the name Nathan because of a bully at the orphanage who once tormented him. It's then revealed, in a major retcon, that Madeline, whose striking resemblance to the deceased Jean Grey has been a subplot since her introduction, is actually a clone of Jean created by Mr. Sinister in order to advance his eugenic experiments on the Summer's bloodline. When Phoenix died on the moon, a fragment of the Phoenix Force shocked Madeline to life because of her genetic connection to Jean. Believing the Summers and Grey bloodlines will produce the most powerful possible mutant child, Sinister used Madeline to combine Jean's DNA with Scott's after Jean was believed killed in the Dark Phoenix saga. Driven to nihilism by this revelation, and feeling entirely abandoned when baby Nathan reaches out telepathically to Jean, Madeline decides to end the world by sacrificing her own child denying Sinister his prize and refusing to serve the purpose for which she was created. She's stopped by the combined forces of X-Factor and the X-Men, and dies by suicide in the final confrontation. 
Nathan Christopher returns home with X-Factor to their headquarters, the living spacecraft ship. Scott and Jean begin raising him, with Jean deciding that because Madeline was her clone, Nathan is essentially her own child. The baby displays psychic mutant powers from an early age, with telekinetic force fields forming around him in dangerous situations. Meanwhile, the man named Cable makes his debut in 1990's New Mutants 87 by Louise Simonson and Rob Liefeld. Although Simonson and Liefeld were toying with the idea of a time traveler, Cable was designed primarily by Liefeld, based on editor Bob Harris's directive to give the New Mutants a new mentor who was take charge and proactive. Harris suggested the name Quinn, while Simonson favored Commander X. The name Cable was Liefeld's suggestion. Cable first encounters the New Mutants when they intervene in his struggle with the Mutant Liberation Front and protect him from being apprehended as a terrorist by Freedom Force. At this stage, the character displays only incredible combat skills and very low-level telekinesis. Cable decides the New Mutants are the perfect soldiers to train for battle against Strife, the leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, who is Cable's nemesis from the future and has also traveled back in time. After consulting with Moira McTaggart and X-Factor, he begins training the kids in a reconstructed headquarters beneath the ruins of the Xavier Mansion, which had been destroyed in the Inferno. Most of the New Mutants cast departs after the franchise-wide event Extinction Agenda, Simonson's final arc on the book, and Liefeld has Cable assemble a new team when he takes over writing duties with co-writer Fabian Niciesa. This group retains New Mutants Cannonball and Boom Boom while incorporating Cable's old mercenary partner, the femme fatale Domino, and new recruits Warpath, Beryl, Shatterstar, and Siren. New Mutants Victor and Sunspot would return to the group in short order. Another of Liefeld and Niciasis' co-creations, the mercenary and assassin Deadpool, makes his first appearance when he attempts to kill Cable on behalf of the mysterious Mr. Tolliver, who had once employed Cable and Domino. Around this time, editor Bob Harris and writers Jim Lee and Wils Portacio came up with the idea that Cable was actually a time-traveling version of Nathan Christopher Summers. Liefeld objected to this, as he had a plan for the character. Cable and Strife were actually the same man at different points in their own subjective timeline. They had already been revealed as identical, and Liefeld's intended big reveal was that Cable was battling a villain he was destined to become. Harris pushed through the Nathan Summers explanation, and Chris Claremont was tasked with helping Leon Portacio craft a story to write out the baby. In X-Factor 65, baby Nathan is kidnapped by Apocalypse, who takes him to a fortress on the moon in an effort to drain his significant mutant energies and become more powerful than ever before. Apocalypse Prime. Over the next few issues, Scott and Jean and their comrades in X-Factor travel to the moon base to rescue Nathan and encounter a mysterious woman called Ascani. Ascani tells them she has come from 2,000 years in the future to save Nathan's life and prevents Hank McCoy, the Beast, from removing baby Nathan from the power-draining device Apocalypse had used. The device is booby-trapped, and disarming it triggers a lethal cosmic energy pulse. To retrieve Nathan, Ascani takes that bullet herself, which damages her time travel technology. Cyclops destroys Apocalypse, for now, but X-Factor is horrified to discover baby Nathan has been infected with a techno-organic virus that is rapidly transforming his flesh into technarch biometal. The techno-organic virus is a thing from New Mutants. Warlock species has it. It's kind of like the Borg. You can get assimilated. Anyway, Ascani tells Scott and Jean she can save Nathan if she takes him to the future, but the damage to her time travel tech means she will probably be killed making the jump. Nathan, therefore, will not be able to return. As the virus is inevitably lethal, Scott decides to entrust his son to Ascani, who disappears with him into a portal. Meanwhile, in X-Force, Cable and his students move out of Xavier's and start acting as a paramilitary special ops group, taking the fight to enemies like the MLF or the New Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, rather than waiting for villains to attack. Cable, however, remains wanted by the U.S. government, 
S.H.I.E.L.D. collaborates with Canada's Department K to create Weapon Prime, a strike force to apprehend him, including two of his former mercenary partners, Garrison Kane and George Washington Bridge. Yes, George Washington Bridge. They call him G.W. After Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, and Wills Portacio all departed Marvel to co-found Image Comics, Fabian Nuciesa assumed full writing duties on X-Force. Simultaneous attacks by Weapon Prime and Mr. Toller's goons separate Cable and Domino from X-Force, and it turns out Domino has been a mole within the group from the start, working for Tolliver. Cable gets her to lead him to Tolliver's base, where they're both shocked to discover the real Domino held prisoner. The Domino, who's been a part of X-Force all this time, and a mole for Tolliver, is actually a shapeshifter named Vanessa, a.k.a. Copycat, Deadpool's girlfriend and partner in crime. Copycat believed the real Domino was dead and had grown to genuinely care for X-Force, so it spared their lives until Deadpool forced her hand. Deadpool now attacks her and leaves her for dead, but she escapes. Tolliver attempts to depart in a helicopter, but Cable blows up the aircraft before using his body slide technology to teleport away. He doesn't see that Tolliver's clothes and a latex mask of a human face are left behind in the wreckage. The two-part miniseries Cable, Blood and Metal shows us more of Cable's past in the 20th century, including his formation of a mercenary team first called the Wild Pack and later called the Six Pack, in which Garrison Kane, G.W. Bridge, and Domino all served. Eventually, the group began working for Tolliver, an arms dealer, though they never saw him in person. Tolliver betrayed them by leading them into conflict with Strife, the first time Cable and Strife had crossed paths in the 20th century. This mission went terribly awry, with Kane left paralyzed by Strife and furious with Cable, and the six-pack disbanded. In the present, Cable goes on a solo mission to Switzerland, where he's attacked by Garrison Kane. Kane reveals, to Cable's shock, that Cable and Strife have the same face and are identical twins. Cable has never seen Strife without his helmet before. Kane and Cable team up to fight the MLF, and this time, when Kane's life is threatened by Strife, Cable decides to stick by his one-time comrade. He takes Kane to the future, where the Ascani save his life with cybernetic implants. While Cable is in the future ensuring Kane's recovery, the franchise wide event Executioner's Song begins when a man who looks just like him attempts to assassinate Charles Xavier. It's strife, of course, but the heroes don't know that, and end up squabbling amongst themselves. By the time Cable arrives in the present, he discovers he has no allies anymore, but manages to convince Wolverine and Bishop, another time traveler from earlier in the future who has recently joined the X-Men, that he's innocent. They attack Strife's base on the moon, formerly the base where Apocalypse infected baby Nathan, and help to rescue Scott and Jean and defeat Strife. Strife then shocks all assembled by revealing that he is actually the time-displaced Nathan Christopher Summers, and declares Cable is a cheap copy. Cable turns his time travel tech into a bomb and implores Cyclops, Strife's father, to blow them both up and save the world. Cyclops, beside himself, sacrifices his son once more. Cable and Strife are both presumed dead in the resulting explosion. Cable actually survives, pivoting to a Cable series written by Fabian Nuciesa. Crash landing in the Ascani future, he visits the resistance group he founded there after the fall of the Ascani Order, the Clan Chosen. He learns the evil new Canaanite dictatorship has built a time machine of their own that must be destroyed. Cable and Garrison Kane, who has recovered from his injuries in blood and metal, manage to use the device to travel back to the 20th century once again. The Clan Chosen then destroy the device, leaving Cable stuck in the past. These early issues of the Cable solo also flash back to show us more of Cable's life before he traveled back in time to mentor the New Mutants. Fighting against the fascist New Canaanites, Cable was married to a fellow clan-chosen soldier named Alia. Alia had taken the codename Jen Scott in honor of Jean Grey and Scott Summers, now mythic figures from thousands of years in the past, known as Jen and Scott, and together they raised a boy named Tyler. 
It isn't entirely clear whether Cable was Tyler's biological father. Cable repeatedly refers to Tyler as Jen Scott's son, and later stories are inconsistent about whether their relationship is biological or adoptive. In any case, a third party in the conflict between New Canaan and the clan Chosen arose, the forces of Strife, the Chaos Springer, who murdered Jen Scott and kidnapped Tyler. Tyler was brainwashed by Strife, becoming his loyal warrior, and Cable was forced to attack him and leave him for dead. Strife and Cable then both traveled back in time in rival efforts to control the timeline. The Cable and X-Force titles run simultaneously as Cable returns to the present, traveling to X-Force's new base at the abandoned Camp Verde Reservation and waiting there for his students to return home. It turns out his space station, Grey Malkin, has been compromised by Magneto and Magneto's acolyte Exodus, who used parts of it to create their space headquarters, Avalon. Cable's grievously injured while retrieving Professor, the AI core of Grey Malkin, before it can be stolen by Magneto. He then downloads Professor into the computer systems at Camp Verde and reunites with X-Force, who had believed him dead. In Cable number 6, Cable and Domino visit the grave of Madeline Pryor, where they're surprised to meet Mr. Sinister. Sinister explains that Strife was mistaken during Executioner's song. Cable is the true Nathan Christopher Summers, and Strife was a clone. Sinister also informs Cable that Mr. Tolliver, the arms dealer who tormented him, is actually his son Tyler. Sinister then activates a trigger, revealing that Strife also survived the events of Executioner's Song as a disembodied psychic consciousness that had hidden away inside Cable's mind. Sinister's influence now allows Strife to take control of Cable's body, and Strife and Tyler get up to various nefarious things until Strife finds out he's actually the clone. This drives him crazy, and he's eventually convinced to let go of Cable's body and pass him to death. Tyler escapes in the confusion. More flashbacks in these issues show us what happened right after the Ascani sister and baby Nathan first traveled forward in time. Sister Ascani, as she'd predicted, was disintegrated by the unstable time travel, and her sister had placed Nathan in stasis to preserve him. Their leader, Mother Ascani, turned out to be Rachel Summers, Nathan's sister from an alternate timeline. Don't worry about it right now, she has her own episode, who had continued Xavier's dream these thousands of years in the future by forming the Ascani Order, the family of outsiders, to battle Apocalypse's eternal rule. Mother Ascani hoped she could cure the techno-organic virus, but the disease was very advanced already, so just in case, she had Nathan cloned. The Ascani son, as Nathan will become known, is an important figure in the prophecy of the Twelve, and if the Ascani could not save the child, they would at least have a clone as backup. Both babies survived, thankfully, but Apocalypse's men managed to breach the Ascani fortress and slaughter the sisterhood. While the Ascani's allies were able to rescue baby Nathan, the clone, later named Strife, was discovered by Apocalypse, who believed him to be the original Nathan Christopher Summers. Meanwhile, back in the present day in X-Force, the villains called the Upstarts begin kidnapping former New Mutants in the event Young Hunt. When Cannonball's telepathically controlled by their leader, the Games Master, Cable works so hard to try to free him that he reawakens his own telepathy, which has been dormant for a decade for reasons. Don't worry about it. In reality, the reason is that the character hadn't been telepathic previously because he wasn't originally intended to be Baby Nathan. More of Cable's childhood is revealed in the 1994 miniseries The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, written by Scott Lobdell, in which we return to the massacre of the Ascani and learn that Mother Ascani had cloned empty bodies using genetic material from Scott Summers and Jean Grey's descendants. She uses her chrono-skimming power to pull her parents' minds 2,000 years forward into the future, placing them in these cloned bodies and giving them new identities as Slim and Red Dayspring. Slim and Red raise baby Nathan, eventually joining the resistance against Apocalypse. Apocalypse, meanwhile, has been raising Strife as his own child, and as his intended vessel the next time he needs a fresh body to inhabit. 
When the boys are 12, Apocalypse prepares to take over Strife's body, but isn't prepared for the body to be an imperfect clone. He's then attacked by Scott, Gene, and Nathan, and ultimately destroyed. His honorable follower, Chever, takes Strife and promises to try to reform him. While Scott and Jean are suddenly whisked back to the past when Mother Iscani, Rachel, finally succumbs to her injuries after 12 years in a coma. Nathan is left alone in an uncertain future, where readers already know that after the fall of Apocalypse, power will be seized by the brutal new Canaanite dictatorship. Back in the present, in the pages of X-Force, written by Fabian Niciesa, the team battles the techno-organic aliens called the Phalanx in the franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant. When a Phalanx agent attempts to take over X-Force's base, it's rebuffed by Cable's AI Professor, which adapts the new technology to make a body for itself, taking the new name Prosh as a portmanteau of Professor and Ship. That'll be explained later. Don't worry about it yet. When Prosh's new form starts disrupting other technology on Earth, he decides to evolve into a spacecraft and leave Earth to explore the universe, parting ways with Cable after decades together. Cable and Domino by this point are developing a romantic relationship, but Cable messes up by forgetting that some of his memories of talking with Domino were actually conversations with Copycat. Still, the two of them help Storm and Caliban battle Apocalypse's Dark Riders, discovering that their new leader, a man called Genesis, is actually Tyler, who has gone completely crazy! While the heroes triumph, Cable is devastated to learn that Tyler is yet again alive and yet again eviler than before. This never really goes anywhere, and eventually Wolverine kills him. Honestly, don't worry about it. Anyway, then a reality warp threatens to destroy the Earth, so Scott and Jean reveal to Cable that they were actually Slim and Red Dayspring. They bond a bit as a family, Cable had already suspected the truth, and Cable kisses Domino just before the end of the world. Instead of ending things, though, the reality warp rewrites the timeline into the franchise-wide event Age of Apocalypse. When that event ends and Earth-616 returns to normal, the characters are confused by the apparent failure of the reality warp. At this point, Fabian Niciesa has been removed from X-Force and Cable, with writing duties assumed by Jeff Loeb. Loeb quickly ties up an ongoing X-Force plot involving the corruption of team member Sunspot into MLF leader Rainfire. Cable's able to use his telepathy to restore Sunspot's original personality. The team moves back into the Xavier Mansion, and there Cable receives a telepathic message from Blacksmith. That's Blacksmith, but with a Q-U-E in the middle. Blackquasmith, like the girl group Black. One of his mentors from the future. Blacksmith has arrived in the present to warn Cable that someone has accessed his databanks for information on Cable, which was believed impossible. I honestly didn't remember this story, but I needed to tell you about Blacksmith, who will be important later. He's a weird, mutated-looking guy. They have never really explained him properly. Cable is then shocked when his late wife, Jen Scott, appears in the 20th century present, 20 years younger than when she died. She asks Cable and Domino to come with her to the Ascani future, where we learn more about Strife's rise to power as the Chaos Springer, leader of the Scions of the High Lord, and his attempts to overthrow the new Canaanites to reclaim Apocalypse's throne. Nathan Dayspring and his clan Chosen were forced to fight New Canaan and Strife at the same time, and Nathan battled Strife on many occasions, though he never saw the man without his helmet. Eventually, Strife poisoned Nathan's mind telepathically, leaving him unable to fight for a while, and that's why Jen Scott needs our Cable's help. Cable rallies the troops while Nathan takes time to recover, and then he and Domino return to the present, leaving Jen, Scott, and Nathan to the fate we have already seen. Blacksmith then contacts Cable to tell him the mind identical to his own is now active on Earth-616. It's Nate Gray, aka X-Man, Cable's equivalent from the Age of Apocalypse timeline who escaped the final reality warp, and was cloned by Mr. Sinister from the DNA of that world's Scott Summers and Jean Gray. 
Nate and Cable fight when their powers interface badly, but they ultimately team up to defeat the villain Exodus. While Blacksmith insists Nate must die, Cable instead chooses to heal Nate's injuries, an act which reawakens the techno-organic virus that has been dormant inside him for so long. Scott Lobdell then revisits the Ascani timeline in the 1996 miniseries Ascani Sun, a sequel to Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix that details the adventures of a teenage Nathan Dayspring. With Apocalypse's death, the fascists called the New Canaanites rise. Nathan and his friend Tetherblood are captured by the New Canaanites, but are rescued by Blacksmith, the only man to have been fully trained by Mother Ascani. Blacksmith locates the engrams of X-Factor's living ship, baby Nathan's home long ago, within Nathan's techno-organic body, and manages to isolate them into an artificial consciousness, which calls itself Professor. That ties up that plotline, finally. The Professor AI reintegrates with Nathan and begins monitoring the techno-organic virus, and Blacksmith tells Nathan to go to Ebenshire in Eurasia, the last surviving stronghold of the Ascani. When Nathan gets close, he's rescued from danger by an Ascani novitiate named Alia, who the reader knows will one day be Nathan's wife, Jen Scott. When he reaches Ebenshire proper, he's welcomed by Madame Sanctity, the sole survivor of the slaughtered Ascani order, who is by this point quite mad. She declares that Nathan is the Ascani son, the prophesied one who will save the world from apocalypse forever. While Sanctity is apparently killed by the new Canaanites, actually disappearing to form an alliance with Strife, Nathan, Alia, and Tetherblood found the clan chosen to oppose New Canaan's totalitarian rule. In the present, it turns out the psychic entity that attacked Blacksmith shortly after the Age of Apocalypse reality warp was actually a corrupted Charles Xavier, who now becomes Onslaught. Don't worry about it. After a series of traumatic battles in which he's nearly consumed by the techno-organic infection inside him, Cable begins to isolate himself somewhat from X-Force and operates more frequently as a solo hero. Eventually, his former students decide they want to make their own choices and sever ties with him to begin their road trip era under writer John Francis Moore. Cable continues to operate in his solo series, now written by James Robinson, where he meets his biological mother, Madeline Pryor, when she approaches him on the astral plane. Maddie has been resurrected by Nate Gray and regrets her actions as the Goblin Queen, at least insofar as baby Nathan was concerned. She wants to be a family together with her son now, but he doesn't trust her and returns to Scott and Jean. Around this time, some flashback stories show us Cable's adventures immediately after arriving in the 20th century, before his first appearance in New Mutants. He landed in Scotland a decade before he was actually born, where the zealous Reverend Craig declared him a herald of the devil. Dr. Moira McTaggart helped him escape and taught him modern English through telepathic contact. When Cable explained he was a time traveler, Moira directed him to Charles Xavier. In exchange for Xavier's help integrating into the 20th century, Cable upgraded new futuristic security systems for the X-Mansion. Back in the present, the machinations of the Hellfire Club and a rogue Ascani cult accidentally awaken the Harbinger, an agent of Apocalypse, and Cable teams up with a reporter named Irene Merriweather, apparently a figure called the Chronicler, part of the prophecy of the Ascani Sun, as they travel the world to avert the crisis. They eventually settle in New York City, and after Domino is nearly killed by a villain named Blockade, Cable erases his mind in a fit of rage. This act makes him a wanted man once again. When the Psy War rages between Betsy Braddock and the Shadow King, do not worry about it, Cable temporarily loses his psychic powers. Blacksmith puts him in contact with the Ascani cult that had awakened the Harbinger, and they provide him with a weapon called the Scimitar, a polearm that channels his remaining latent telekinetic power. It's scimitar, but with a psi on the front, like psionic. It's very silly because it's a spear, it's not a scimitar at all, but whatever. 
Cable evades S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and reunites with Nate Gray to battle strife. They defeat their evil counterpart, but the rising of Apocalypse draws near, and the prophecy of the Ascani Sun and the Twelve is at hand. Mother Ascani projects herself back in time via chrono-skimming to psychically inform Nathan who the Twelve are, and Cable manages to destroy the Harbinger while reclaiming the full strength of his psychic powers. He still uses the Scimitar because he thinks it's cool. Meanwhile, over in the X-Men titles, Jean Grey contacts Cable because Xavier has mysteriously disbanded the X-Men. Cable joins up to battle Apocalypse's new horseman of death, and death apparently kills Wolverine. But Wolverine turns out to be a Skrull imposter, and the actual Wolverine has been turned into death. Xavier reveals he'd disbanded the team to root out the imposter in their midst. The franchise-wide event The Twelve then begins, in which Cable assembles the fabled Twelve to defeat Apocalypse. He goes to bid his final goodbyes to X-Force, he expects he'll be killed in this final battle, but he's kidnapped by the Horsemen and taken to Apocalypse. Eventually, all of the Twelve are captured, and it turns out Apocalypse long ago wrote the prophecy himself. It's a trick, an attempt to gather the Twelve mutants he needs to create a circuit of power and become omnipotent. His intent is to merge with Nate Gray, a perfected Ascani son without techno-organic infection. The Twelve disrupt the ritual, however, and Apocalypse ends up fusing with Cyclops instead, apparently killing Nathan's father and himself. The new Gestalt being is eventually defeated by the X-Men and disappears. A flashback one-shot in this period, Cable and Wolverine Guts and Glory, establishes that Cable and Wolverine took a mission together shortly after Cable arrived in the 20th century, before Wolverine joined the X-Men. Meanwhile, in the present, as Chris Claremont returns to Uncanny X-Men for the Revolution relaunch, Cable feels guilty about the apparent death of Cyclops. He begins wearing an eye patch as an homage to his father and joins the X-Men as a formal team member. He also continues to operate with Blacksmith and Irene Merriweather in his solo series, now written by a bunch of different people, and I honestly don't want to keep track. Please look it up if you're interested. I think at this point it's Robert Weinberg? Anyway, it turns out the Ascani future has been erased by the apparent death of Apocalypse. Earth-616 now has two potential futures, one that is peaceful, in which mutant kind has been eradicated, and one that is not peaceful, in which mutants have conquered the galaxy. It all hinges on one man in the present, and Nathan struggles to decide which timeline should prevail, especially as he interacts with two versions of Genscop from the new timelines. Eventually, he decides to negate both futures, leaving the future of Earth-616 open. Then he travels to the end of time to rescue Rachel Summers, his sister, who had been pitched back into the time stream young again when the Ascani timeline was erased. Cable brings her back to the present, but Rachel asks him not to tell anyone she's returned just yet. Another flashback story around this time reveals that when the X-Man Rogue was a teenager, being chased by a mob after accidentally putting local boy Cody Robbins in a coma with her life-draining kiss, Cable rescued her from the attack. Rogue never got a good look at Cable at the time, so never made the connection. When Senator Robert Kelly, formerly an anti-mutant agitator who has since come around and seen the error of his ways, is once again threatened with assassination, Cable is embedded in his staff to protect him from the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. While he succeeds in that task, Cable doesn't anticipate that Kelly will be murdered by a human bigot, who's angry about the Senator's shift on mutant rights. Shortly after this, Moira McTaggart is murdered by Mystique, and Cable is devastated. Moira was the first person to welcome him to the 20th century. Deciding the X-Men are too reactive and could have done more to prevent Moira's death, he quits the team, though Storm tells him he's always welcome if he wishes to return. In a miniseries called X-Men, The Search for Cyclops by Joseph Harris and Tom Rainey, it turns out part of the apocalypse Cyclops Gestalt being is still Scott, fighting the merger. The Gestalt has lost its memories, and Cable and Jean track it down. Jean manages to pull Apocalypse out of Scott's body, which has reverted to normal, and Cable slays Apocalypse with the Scimitar, apparently fulfilling his destiny as the Ascani son and restoring his father's mind. 
Cable then gets attacked by the Dark Sisterhood. Do not worry about it. And Rachel helps him defeat them. This leads into Soldier X, a relaunch of the Cable Solo series by Darko Makani and Igor Cordy. Finally finished with Apocalypse, Cable becomes a soldier of fortune, traveling the world fighting terrorism. He manages to synthesize the recently released cure for the legacy virus to cure himself of the techno-organic virus, but this makes his mutant powers go deeply out of control. Do not worry about any of this. Also do not worry about Frank Thierry's Weapon X, in which a new version of the Weapon X program arises. Cable and Domino establish an underground network to defeat Weapon X, but they wind up manipulated by Weapon X and by Marrow specifically, and honestly, I don't want to talk about this anymore. None of it matters. Anyway, Cable pivots into Cable and Deadpool, a new series written by Fabian Niciesa, where Cable teams up with the now much less villainous Deadpool. I'm just going to give you the broad strokes of this series because it intentionally did not overlap that much with the X-Men. The techno-organic virus returns, but Cable's powers are still growing, and he realizes they're going to kill him eventually. Hearing the thoughts of the whole world starts to drive Cable a little crazy, so he decides to use his vast power to save humanity from itself before he dies, preserving the environment, preventing violence, and establishing an island nation called Providence from the ruins of his spacecraft Grey Malcolm, which he opens to refugees. He gives the world's governments 48 hours to dismantle their nuclear arsenals, or he will destroy the weapons for them. Eventually, after lots of shenanigans, Cable links the minds of everyone on Earth so they can see what world peace would be like if only for a moment. Then he lobotomizes himself to remove his out-of-control superpowers, saving his own life but leaving him in a vegetative state. Cable eventually recovers due to Deadpool's intervention and rehabilitates himself slowly on Providence. Then comes a 2004 X-Force miniseries by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Luciesa, where Cable reunites with some of his old students to defeat an ancient evil called the Scorn. Do not worry about it. Cable apparently dies to destroy the entity, but back in the pages of Cable and Deadpool, it turns out that he's actually had his essence split into different timelines. Deadpool and his friends begin hopping realities to retrieve pieces of Cable, but the process is disrupted by the House of M reality warp created by the Scarlet Witch. The end result is that Cable comes back with his psychic powers restored, but he has to sacrifice them again immediately to save Deadpool's life. Honestly, it is just a real roller coaster ride with these psychic powers. With new technology to compensate for the loss of those powers, Cable continues to defend Providence from other nations that feel threatened by it. Some flashbacks around this time show us Nathan Daystring becoming the warrior Cable, intending to symbolically connect the past and the future. He found the ancient shield of Captain America and used it in battle for many years, dueling with Apocalypse throughout the timeline and briefly defeating him. Cable comes to realize, to his horror, that during one of those encounters, his own techno-organic blood had infected Apocalypse, setting Apocalypse on his past to power in the first place. Some weird stuff happens here that you mostly don't need to worry about. In response to the decimation, in which the Scarlet Witch depowered all but about 200 mutants on Earth, Cable decides to help reawaken Apocalypse, believing he will galvanize Earth's mutants into banding together. Weird plan, just my opinion. Anyway, then Cable deposes the dictator of Rumekistan and annexes the country himself, expanding his power base. He sides with Captain America during the company-wide event Civil War, opposing the Superhuman Registration Act, which threatens his friendship with Deadpool, who is working for the registration forces. S.H.I.E.L.D. decides enough is enough and attacks Providence by hiring the Six-Pack and Deadpool, who know Cable better than anyone. While Cable is able to convince Domino of his good intentions, his telepathic meddling with Deadpool further damages their friendship. Meanwhile, in Mike Carey's new run on X-Men, Cable comes to the mansion to assist after he reads a news report about a crisis involving the team. He helps defeat Northstar and Aurora, who have been brainwashed by the Children of the Vault, and ends up recruited by Rogue to join her new strike team. He abdicates his rule over Rumekistan after successfully organizing democratic presidential elections there, and leaves the management of Providence to Irene Merriweather and Domino. 
When Rogue is infected with a deadly new virus called Strain 88, Cable brings the X-Men to Providence to recover and seek treatment for her. They are then attacked by the Hecatomb, an ancient Shi'ar bioweapon, which absolutely wrecks the shit out of Providence. Cable figures out Rogue's power can defeat the Hecatomb, but it comes at the cost of her sanity as she absorbs billions of alien minds. Cable stays behind on Providence as the Cable and Deadpool series continues. Sabretooth's gone bad again in the ruins of Providence, and he kills Cable's ally Black Box. Cable and Domino team up with Deadpool to defeat Sabretooth, and the adventure rekindles Cable and Deadpool's relationship. Friendship. I don't know. Whatever you want to call it. With Providence now ruined and evacuated, Cable decides to destroy it so that nobody can exploit its technology. He self-destructs the island during a battle and is apparently killed, but turns up again for the franchise-wide event Messiah Complex, in which the first mutant child since the decimation is born. Cable knows this baby girl is the mutant Messiah, essential to the survival of mutant kind, and with Deadpool's help, he rescues her while the purifiers are massacring everyone in the small Alaska town where she was born. Cable plans to escape into the time stream and raise the baby in the future, but no longer has the proper equipment for safe time travel. He makes his way to the X-Man Forge's laboratory in Dallas, Eagle Plaza, but crosses paths with fellow time-traveling X-Man Bishop, who is determined to kill the child. In Bishop's future, the so-called mutant messiah caused a massive tragedy that led to a mutant holocaust, including the concentration camps where Bishop grew up. It's not entirely clear whether Bishop's future is an earlier point in Cable's future or whether these are two entirely divergent timelines both involving the mutant messiah. In any case, Bishop leads the X-Men to believe Cable has betrayed them, causing trouble for him until Bishop can catch up with him to kill the baby. Bishop catches up with Cable at Eagle Plaza and attacks him, but the Marauders briefly kidnap the child from them both. Cable's able to recover her with the help of Professor Xavier. In the final battle, Cable explains his plan to Cyclops and the two agree it is the best course of action. Scott decides to trust his son, much as he once trusted sister Ascani, and Cable succeeds in escaping to the future with the baby Messiah. But Bishop accidentally shoots Xavier while trying to kill her, apparently murdering the professor. He'll get better, but Cable doesn't know that. He's busy in a new Cable solo series by Dwayne Sarinsky and Ariel Olivetti, in which he tries to raise the baby girl in the future, pursued through the timeline by Bishop, who's bent on killing them both. Cable manages to reach the ruins of the Xavier Mansion, where he's aided by an elderly cannonball, but Bishop kills Sam. Because Bishop's intent on killing the mutant messiah, he believes any timeline in which she continues to exist isn't real and doesn't count, as it'll be erased once he eliminates her and rewrites the timeline. Bishop therefore feels there's no crime too heinous to commit in the pursuit of eliminating the baby. Cable and Bishop hop back and forth through the timeline playing cat and mouse, until Cable manages to find a lost colony called New Liberty. He lives there for two years, falling in love with a woman named Hope, whom he marries. The child turns five and still has no name, as Cable doesn't feel it's his place to name her. Hope thinks that's silly. After a battle with some cockroach people, don't worry about it, traps Cable, Hope, and the baby outside the force field protected colony, they're unable to return and begin traveling the ruins of America, trying to get back to Westchester. The Messiah child ends up having to stab the President of the United States, who is a cockroach person. Do not worry about it! Anyway, they're beset by bandits several times along the way, and in one of these attacks, Hope is killed in the crossfire. Cable, mourning, finally names his daughter, calling her Hope after his now second dead wife. I kind of hate this story. Nathan and little Hope, I'm just going to call her Hope now, but I mean the Messiah child, not the dead wife, join a resistance group against the cockroach people and spend two years in that fight. Eventually, Cable realizes the leadership is going to destroy themselves with an untested bioweapon, so he takes Hope further into the future finding America, as he suspected, now a devastated wasteland. 
They suffer in their travels across the wasteland, but eventually find a secret message that reacts to Cable's DNA, giving him a message from Cyclops in the present with information on Bishop's movements and a little pep talk. Eventually, Cable and Hope find they can't travel any further than 2973, because Bishop has set up a temporal net by aligning himself with Strife. Cyclops sends his Black Ops team X-Force into the future to help defeat Strife and destroy the temporal net in the event Messiah War. Cable and Hope end up separated in the time streams, and she lands two years earlier than him on their next jump. When they're finally reunited, in a city where she's been surviving among Strife's former followers, Cable declares himself Strife Reborn and seizes control of the city so they can commandeer a spaceship and leave. The ship travels for years, looking for a habitable planet, but eventually the Strife story falls apart, and Cable winds up put in the brig by the time Bishop catches up with them, bent on killing everyone with a suicide attack. The two remaining functional escape pods take Cable and Hope back to Earth after two years in semi-stasis. Do you see what they're doing here? Hope keeps steadily aging up. By the time they land, she's a teenager with developing mutant powers, and she and Cable decide it's time to return to the past to face her destiny. Bishop continues to chase them, but Cable manages to damage his time travel device, and Bishop finally winds up stranded in the 68th century, with no ability to return. Cable and Hope arrive in the present not long after Messiah Complex. This leads into the franchise-wide event Second Coming, where the Super Sentinel Bastion attempts to destroy Hope by bringing together various anti-mutant human extremist groups. The X-Man Nightcrawler sacrifices his life to transport Hope safely to the mutant haven Utopia, where Cable and X-Force think they can stop Bastion's Nimrod Sentinel forces by traveling to the future. Since Cable's time machine has been damaged and it's now a one-way trip, he bids goodbye to Hope, believing he'll never see her again. After reaching the future Mastermold facility, the team disables the robots and Cable figures out a way to send the others home. He sacrifices his life by allowing the techno-organic virus to consume him, merging with the Sentinel time portal to send the others back to the past. Locking eyes with Hope, he disintegrates, leaving only his prosthetic arm behind. This leads to the 2011 miniseries Avengers X Sanction, written by Jeff Loeb, which you do not need to worry about. Basically, Cable is spit out of the time stream again, because he's never actually dead, let's be honest, into another horrible wasteland future. Blacksmith tells him Hope's messianic destiny hasn't gone right because of the Avengers. Cable returns to our present, but learns the techno-organic virus will consume him in 24 hours. He decides to make a suicide mission to stop the Avengers from impacting Hope's destiny but eventually fails and is defeated. Blacksmith advises Hope that she can heal her father, and she reveals her status as the mutant messiah gives her innate connection to the Phoenix Force. By channeling some of its power, she erases the techno-organic virus from Cable's body entirely. Cable remains in a coma, but telepathically shows Cyclops what he saw in the future the Avengers had inadvertently caused, making Scott promise he will protect Hope from them. That naturally leads into Avengers vs. X-Men, in which five of the X-Men, including Cyclops, are empowered by the Phoenix Force after Tony Stark breaks it into pieces in an effort to destroy it. Cyclops eventually absorbs all the pieces, goes crazy, and murders Charles Xavier for opposing him. Hope, at least, manages to tap into the Phoenix, claim its power, and restart the process of mutant births. While the mutants who were depowered in the decimation remain depowered, new young mutants begin to manifest around the world, and children can once more be born with the X-Gene. Cable wakes up from his coma, but tells Hope he wants her to make her own choices, so he disappears as Utopia falls. This leads into Cable and X-Force by Dennis Hopeless and Salvador La Roca, in which Cable copes with new disabilities after losing his techno-organic parts when Hope cured the virus. He finds Forge, who had gone crazy a while back, and telepathically helps heal the other mutant's mind. Restored to his senses, Forge starts designing new prosthetics for Cable. They settle down in Nebraska, near where Hope is living a normal life for the first time with a foster family, and Cable suddenly begins experiencing horrible headaches. Dr. Nemesis is able to determine the headaches are caused by precognitive visions of the future, which is a power Cable has never had before. 
The pressure on Cable's brain is killing him, but Nemesis is able to surgically alleviate it to some degree. Cable forms a new X-Force team to root out the threats and emergencies he foresees, but insists hope remain with her foster family. After a misunderstanding makes it appear that Cable's X-Force has killed dozens of human factory workers, the Avengers declare them outlaws. X-Force goes underground and continues to pursue Cable's visions, which are more and more frequent. They eventually wind up captured because Cable can't focus. Hope, meanwhile, uncovers where the visions are coming from. Blacksmith, who felt Cable was neglecting his duty to protect the time stream, and a future version of Hope herself, who believes manipulating her father in the past is the only way to prevent a dire apocalyptic future. Blacksmith and the future Hope don't realize the visions are killing Cable, though, so they give present-day Hope a scimitar that can release some of his psychic stress. Hope arrives at the Avengers' mansion to find Cable held captive by his uncle, Havoc, and stabs her father in the head with the scimitar, stabilizing his powers. Havoc briefly experiences one of the visions himself, and tells Cable to continue his quest, declaring he will call the Avengers off. Stabilizing but keeping the precognitive visions ends up disabling Cable's telepathy and telekinesis in the latest power shakeup. Cable and X-Force then crosses over with Uncanny X-Force, a confusingly separate book written by Sam Humphreys featuring a confusingly separate X-Force team led by Storm and Betsy Braddock. Bishop, who had found enlightenment and peace in the 68th century, had managed to come back in time and was welcomed back into the group. It turns out maybe he was possessed by a demon bear. Honestly, do not worry about it. We'll get into it in a Bishop episode eventually. In the crossover Vendetta, when Hope finds out Bishop is back, she's immediately bent on killing him even though Bishop insists he no longer has any desire to hurt her. Cable tries to head her off at the pass so he can kill Bishop himself and prevent Hope from committing murder. Then Strife shows up, obviously, and locks Bishop and Hope in a room together to encourage Hope to kill Bishop. Bishop's willing to die to atone for all the things he did in the future, but convinces Hope she should choose a better path for herself. He ends up rescuing Hope when Strife overloads her powers. After deciding to let Bishop live, Cable merges his team with Betsy's, leading to a new volume of X-Force written by Cy Spurrier. In this story, Cable gets infected by the Volga Strain, a bioweapon that enhances superpowers but kills the host after 24 hours. When Hope uses her power to mimic his, she's also infected. To preserve her, Cable has her put in stasis while Dr. Nemesis tries to isolate a cure. They freeze Cable's original body, but clone him a new one every day and upload his memory engrams. This is an interesting precursor to Krakoa, just saying. Each cloned body also has the Volga Strain, unfortunately, and therefore only 24 hours to live. The frozen Cable Prime is still melting down, albeit very slowly, leaving X-Force with a time limit to solve the problem. The Cable clones begin sleeping with Betsy, who only fucks them after their memories have been uploaded for the night so they won't remember it the next day. She's in a bad place. Over time, Cable's morality begins to degrade. Nemesis theorizes that the constant cloning process is getting him further and further away from his true original self. After his memory gaps lead to Domino being captured for a time, and Phantom X goes crazy and turns on the team, Hope is pushed to her limit when she realizes Cable's intentionally weaponizing Phantom X by pointing him at targets. X-Force executes the current Cable clone and defeats Phantom X, and Hope manages to cure the Volga strain. Though the real Cable wakes up healthy, and Nemesis argues the repeated clones did have diminished capacity, Hope's still disgusted with her father's actions, and decides to take command of X-Force herself as the series ends. Cable next teams up with his old companion Deadpool in the 2015 miniseries Cable and Deadpool Split Second by Fabian Nicieza and Riley Brown time travel story where retcons amusingly reveal that Deadpool anonymously saved Cable's life at several key points in Cable's past. Deadpool ends up helping multiple Cables from different timelines integrate into a stronger, revitalized version, who seems a bit younger in age, more like the age he was when he left for the future with Baby Hope, and has his powers restored. Cable then recurs in the third volume of Uncanny Avengers by Jerry Duggan, assisting Deadpool and his old team leader Rogue. 
This is the Inhumans vs. X-Men era, and this character file is running long, so guess what? We're mostly going to skip it. All you need to know is Cable becomes part of the Avengers Unity Squad for a while, but he and Rogue covertly attack the U.S. government when they learn they're weaponizing the Terrigen Mist for potential use against mutants. Cable ends up wiping his own mind to protect his knowledge of the future during a telepathic conflict with the Red Skull, who has stolen Charles Xavier's telepathy via a brain transplant. Do not worry about it. Cable's mind turns out to be hidden within the circuits of his prosthetic arm, and the inhuman Synapse, whom Cable had helped in the past, is able to restore him. He hops around the time stream for a while, having some solo adventures in the future you don't need to worry about. Then he hops around in the time stream for a while, having solo adventures in the future you don't really need to worry about. He fights the external Gideon. Good for Gideon, I guess. Been a while since Gideon had a moment. Anyway, in the present, over in Despicable Deadpool, written by Jerry Duggan, Deadpool's family gets infected with a terminal bioweapon, and the only person who can help him is Strife. Strife demands Deadpool take four lives in exchange for the four he has saved, including Cable's old comrade Irene Merriweather. One of the other targets is Cable, and after various shenanigans, Cable and Deadpool decide to kill a far-future alternate version of Cable so that Deadpool can deliver his heart to Strife and complete the deal. In the 2018 franchise-wide event Extermination by Ed Briss and Pepe Lara, a younger teenage version of Cable from not long after the events of the Ascani Sun miniseries learns about the time-displaced original X-Men. Don't worry about it right now. When their continued disruption of the timeline creates ripples in the Ascani future, leading to the premature deaths of Tetherblood and Genscott. Blacksmith blames Cable's older self, who he says should have done his duty to get rid of the anomalies. He tells Teen Cable that Scott Summers and Jean Grey are his parents who raised him as Slim and Red Dayspring, and Teen Cable decides to jump to the past and carry out what his older self will not. In our present, he confronts older Cable and murders him, declaring him weak. He then ensures the time-displaced original X-Men return to the past, stabilizing the timeline in the present and restoring the Ascani future. Teen Cable manages to resurrect Cyclops, who had died in the lead-up to Inhumans vs. X-Men, but don't worry about that. He then travels to Transia in Ed Brisson's run on X-Force, where he battles a teenage version of Strife and rescues his older sister Rachel, who Teen Cable has only ever known as Mother Ascani. Once Strife is defeated and mind-wiped, Teen Cable declares he will protect the timeline, not change it to serve his own ends, as his older self once did. At this point, we have to accept the paradox that this Teen Cable knows about his parentage and about Strife being his clone, decades before Cable learned about those events in the 90s stories, which is probably something that should have consequences, but time travel is confusing, so maybe don't worry about it. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Teen Cable is one of countless mutants to join the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. He moves into a family home called Summer House that Cyclops establishes on the moon, claiming the very spot where Dark Phoenix died and Apocalypse once infected baby Nathan with the techno-organic virus. After a brief adventure with Conan and Laura Kinney in the miniseries Fallen Angels, don't worry about it, Teen Cable becomes the star of a new Cable solo, a 12-issue maxi-series by Jerry Duggan and Phil Noto, where he settles into the Summers family unit and begins to enjoy a normal life his previous iteration had never experienced. He claims the Light of Galador, a galactic weapon that once belonged to a space knight, and begins dating all five of the hive mind separate cuckoos, especially Esme, the slightly evil one. He's even named head of security at the new iteration of S.W.O.R.D. In his solo, Teen Cable begins investigating cases of mutant babies disappearing, something reminiscent of what happened to him as a baby. It turns out Strife has been capturing the babies in an effort to recreate the Inferno spell, and Teen Cable, after learning his limits during the franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, decides the time has come to tag out to his older self. He convinces his parents to have adult Cable resurrected on Krakoa, relinquishing his own resurrection privileges. Teen Cable and Adult Cable team up to defeat Strife, and Teen Cable returns to the future to age there into Adult Cable, in presumably mostly the way we've already seen before, 
He does know stuff earlier than he should, though. I am really trying not to worry about it. With the experienced Elder Cable now back in the present, reporting that from his future's perspective, the first for Cohen age was a watershed moment for mutant kind, the stakes for control of the future have never been higher. With Orcus blossoming and Homo Novissima looming on the horizon, it may take the Ascani sun to set mutant kind on the right path. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. Welcome back. I hope that all of that ad integration worked the way that I intended it to, but I have no idea. So here we are, strangers in a strange land together. I have a couple business bits I want to do before we get into Vishal's favorite cable stories. First of all, I do have a correction from episode 50. William Clark wrote in to let me know that I made a credit mistake that I think was understandable, but he's right that I was wrong. I mentioned that X-Men Minus One was drawn by Brian Hitch, which is not correct. Brian Hitch drew Uncanny X-Men Minus One. X-Men Minus One was drawn by Carlos Pacheco. My apologies to Mr. Pacheco. Then I just have two letters I want to read. I put out calls for input on two different things in the previous two episodes. One was... In the Gambit episode, I was interested in any trans perspectives on the character of Courier from the Fabian Niciesa solo series. And then I asked if any listeners with physical disabilities wanted to opine about Xavier and some of the questions that Spencer and I raised in that episode. So I just have two letters I want to read because I thought they were really interesting So Courier, if you're not familiar with that Gambit story, is a shapeshifter who is introduced as Jack Gavin, who's a male character, ends up trapped in a female form because of stuff with Mr. Sinister, and starts going by Jackie and adjusting to life as a woman, and as Jackie has something of a flirtation with Gambit. And I was like, I don't know how I would assess this story, but if anybody has thoughts, write in. So here is what Dr. Holly Schaefer-Raymond had to say. Hi, Connor. First off, I'm a huge fan. I found Cerebro while trying to win an argument about whether or not Fabian Niciesa deliberately wrote Juggernaut and Black Tom as a couple, and nothing endears me to something more than when it lets me win a fight on the internet. So I've been listening avidly ever since. In your recent episode on Gambit, you bring up Courier, Jack, or Jackie Gavin, and put out a request for trans readers to weigh in, so here's my take. I was 13, maybe 14, when Gambit 13 came out, and I was very much in the closet. As Julia Serrano writes about in Whipping Girl, this was an era in which trans women in pop culture were depicted for the most part as one of two things. Sad, creepy men in dresses and fright wigs, or predatory femme fatales looking to entrap straight men into deviant sexual encounters. I knew as a teenager that I felt as if I were a woman, desperately wanted to live my life as one, and that I hated being treated like I was becoming a man. But because trans bodies were so constantly limbed as abject or evil, my main priority was just trying to fix myself and get over what I thought was an unhealthy urge, a psychological problem with no acceptable medical or social solution. The late 90s were rough stuff for trans kids, and in my experience, my little adolescent period of woe was not at all unusual for the period. So enter Jackie Gavin. I'd be exaggerating if I said that she had a huge formative influence on me because, well, I thought that Gambit was just an okay series, and I didn't even really read it each and every month. But it did stick with me that for the most part, her transformation was treated as a casual, playful twist, almost akin to the kind of frothiness of a screwball comedy. It also stuck with me that she wasn't treated as grotesque. Everybody around her found her really attractive. Even if from the vantage point of 2021, I can look back on Gambit's flirtatious teasing and be like, back off, man, give the lady some breathing room. I mean, ultimately, it's not an exemplary trans story, and I'm not even sure if I would call Courier a trans character as such. But, you know, I don't know if I would call Virginia Woolf's Orlando a strictly trans novel either, but it was still one of a handful of texts that made me slam on the brakes and go, oh my god, hold on. 
It's not, to me, about checking off a bunch of check marks. It's about saying something interesting or curious about gender identity, or simply presenting gender mutability and transience as normal, as fun, as something that merits an effective response beyond horror or amused repugnance, or simply modeling a life beyond binary cisness as possible. For 1999, then, the Courier stuff does pretty well. I'm a university instructor, and whenever I can, I teach a course on queer American literature. The mere fact that Nisiesa showed this character becoming a woman and then adopting that as a life worth living, and that it doesn't substantially compromise Jackie's sense of herself as a person, or crucially, the core of her relationship with Gambit, puts the whole thing well ahead of the curve for the time. I think it's an interesting contrast to trans readings of Mystique and Emma, both of which I'm somewhat skeptical of. I'm tired of stories about trans women hinging on motifs of deception or dissimulation, etc., of a true form lurking under the veneer of beauty. I think a good writer could write a very moving and compelling story about either of those characters as trans, but I'd personally rather avoid the pitfalls. The very blaseness of Courier's story, what the fuck? Hmm, well, okay, I guess I can live with this, neatly sidesteps a lot of those potentially worn out tropes, even if Nisiesa wasn't thinking in those terms way back then. That mattered to me as a confused trans teenager. Sometimes somebody is just a woman all of a sudden and their life goes on, their job goes on, their friendships go on, c'est la vie. In a really small provisional way, it modeled for me a sense of trans futurity. Transitioning was not, in every case, the end of life as a socially imbricated being. Anyway, sorry that an email that was initially just going to be, I think Courier is neat and an interesting case study wound up being so sprawling. Thanks for putting out such an excellent and consistently thoughtful and funny podcast. It's my regular cardio companion these days and has helped get my wife into a ton of older comics she'd probably never have cracked open otherwise. Best, Dr. Holly Schaefer-Raymond. Holly, thank you for writing in that is a great letter i wanted to make sure that that was heard i really appreciate you writing in on the subject of charles jacob huffstadter wrote in and said hi connor i hope this email finds you well I thought I'd write in about Professor X and disability rep. I have cerebral palsy. However, unlike our bald friend, I've had my disability since birth, and I don't use a wheelchair. However, speaking only for myself, there's a lot in Charles's attitude toward his disability that mirrors my own. Insofar that it's a condition that was forced upon him that he resents and thinks it's unfortunate, I know that if I was able to transfer into a fresh clone body that didn't have cerebral palsy, I would do it in a heartbeat. I know that for many disabled folks, the situation is different. They form a certain degree of pride in their disability, but that hasn't been my experience. The thing is, neither of those viewpoints is necessarily wrong. No one can tell you how to feel about your own disability. I think where Charles starts to make a mistake is when he views his disability not as simply a physical limitation, but as a moral one, thinking that there's something wrong with him instead of just physical issues with his body. This is something I've struggled with, but it can lead to a really bad place. When Charles dismisses the Morlocks or pressures mutants to wear image inducers, it springs from the belief in the badness of his disability. To me, that's where the ableism comes in, not simply in wishing that he didn't have his disability. I think it's incredibly important then to have karma in the mix to show another viewpoint, someone who's embraced her disability. Again, neither of them are right or wrong, but it shows the importance of bodily autonomy and that disabled people can make their own decisions, even if they sharply contrast with one another. All the best, Jay Cuffstadter. P.S. You do a truly fantastic job every week. I feel like I constantly learn something new and expand my horizons. I'm sure I'll be listening to reruns and recommending the podcast to young whippersnappers well into the 2050s. But thank you so much. And thank you again to both of you for writing in. I really appreciated those viewpoints. The thing is like, you know, I do the best I can and I try to bring in a lot of different guests, but it's impossible to have a guest for every episode that can speak to every intersecting identity that a character has. So I appreciate when people write in with supplemental stuff like that. I really, really do. That all out of the way, I am joined once more by Vishal Gulapali, comics critic and website editor for some of your favorite criticism sites. I guess, if you like them. I don't know. I don't know what your favorites are. I'm just assuming because I don't know who's listening to this right now. But, you know, I think they're pretty good. (laughs) Vishal, I'd love to talk about some of your favorite cable stories that we haven't touched on yet. 
we've covered kind of the 90s and the messiah war kind of era yeah all right so let's let's go chronologically here sure the first issue i read where i was like cable's a perfect character some random issue of i'm pretty sure it's nisiase's x-force or maybe it might be wheezy's new mutants but it's whenever everyone's using the mansion and there's some conflict over who's in the danger room at some time Mm -hmm. charles or cyclops or someone is like we have a schedule it's our turn on the schedule and cable just goes we don't need no mickey mouse schedules i was like perfect amazing i'm done this is it this is the one i love that for you i do every now and then there's like an issue that really like for me with betsy it's that issue in the mutant massacre where Sabretooth invades mm-hmm. like that i was in i was like yeah. this is my girl and then it was a long and winding crazy road but i'm very happy with where we're back at now yeah. with emma i didn't truly fall in love with emma until the morrison era yeah. it's when she comes back to the mansion and snaps cassandra nova's neck and you're mm-hmm. just like god that's cool like <laughs> <laughs> There are those moments, and sometimes you don't remember the issue number, sometimes you don't remember exactly where it is, but you're just like, I remember that moment where I was like, you're my favorite. Yeah, it's it's just a perfect like mix of absolutely goofy, and you're going to make fun of this forever, but also, like, I love it. Like, go off, King. Yes, no Mickey Mouse schedules. Fuck that. Beyond that, my actual, like, favorite, favorite Cable story is actually the one where he's not in it at all. It's Assault on Grey Malkin, where mm-hmm. immediately after Executioner's Song, the first issue after X-Force number 19, which is usually collected with Executioner's Song as some sort of coda to it. Mm-hmm. They all kind of have one. Yeah, it's my personal favorite issue of X-Comics, like, ever. I wrote about it for Shelf Dust. It's incredible. Cannonball basically explains to Xavier that his dichotomy of the open hand and the closed fist is inherently flawed. That's not how anything works. The open hand isn't any less destructive than the closed fist, and the closed fist isn't any less protective than the open hand. It all comes down to how you use it. And what he specifically says is, I've been trained by you, I've been trained by Magneto, and I've been trained by Cable. I am one of two people who can say that. The other one's Sunspot, who has a flirtation with leaving, like, every other arc. Yeah, and he's been, like, hanging out with Gideon down in South America for the last, like, ten issues. Yeah, so when Cannonball says all this, it's super meaningful because it's like, wait, This is the effect Cable has had on Sam. Sam isn't the lanky dude who's just trying to be a good guy for all of his friends. He's not the guy who says, my ancestors fought in the Confederacy. Like, he's not that. He's an adult, and he is very willing to call Charles Xavier out because he knows that Xavier isn't perfect. And I think the issue ends on this thing of Sam being annoyed that someone in X-Force hacked the x-men's computers while i'm like no let them hack the computers screw the x-men hack them but like (laughs) as a whole i love the issue and i love even after that because it's like cable has had such a profound impact on these people who let's say 18 19 years old yeah thereabouts they have fully like grown in they obviously have a lot of work to do but they are adults and they feel like adults and that's the first time they really felt like adults and then immediately after that you have them going to gray malkin getting into, like, a fight with everyone who's trying to get Grey Malkin at the same time. And I think it's Iron Man or War Machine who asks Sam, like, why are you even here? And Sam says, 
I just really wanted him to leave us something. There has to be something that he left us. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to have meant something to him. And then even after that, my favorite moment ever is when they finally get to, um, not shit, Professor. They get to Professor's core. Well, Professor is ship, yeah. right? It's but like, that it's wasn't complicated. his name. Yeah, I, was trying, I couldn't remember <laughs> yeah. his name as Professor. But Yeah. Later, Prosh, which is like a portmanteau of Professor and ship. But we yeah. truly don't need to worry about that. <laughs> So when they go into Professor's core, there's this whole thing about they need to destroy Professor. I don't remember the specific reasons why, but like they need to destroy the AI. They need to destroy ship to salvage something or the other. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's a self-destruct sequence going and they don't know how to stop it because it was coded to Cable and one other person and they don't know who. And Sunspot just tells Sam, like, it was you. You were basically Cable's son. It was always going to be you. And... Sam does it, and it works. And Professor basically says that Cable saw Sunspot and Cannonball as, like, his as two his heirs, children. His children. Yeah. And, yeah, like, you mentioned you don't really see that as a father-son thing. No, I do. Yeah, like, I just I just found it also, yes. I just don't want to be, like, problematic when I say <laughs> I find that panel sexy. No, absolutely. I 100% get you. But just, I am a big sucker for just father-son stuff, father-daughter, just fathers and old men trying to teach younger people. I love that. Well, then Cable really is, yeah, a character yeah. for you, isn't he? So that specific moment, like, I can't read it without tearing up a little bit because it's like, these two, they're boys. Like, I'm older than them now. I can call them boys. Mm-hmm. But, like, these two boys saw Cable as, like, close to a father. Sam has kind of, like, gone through father figures since his actual dad died. And Cable was the one that, like, he landed on and Cable, like, treated him with respect more than anyone else. And to have that completely validated, that Cable, yes, he did value Sam and he did value X-Force. And they were just as important to him as he was to them. That really hit home for me. Just like, mm-hmm. this is a character you could write as this really gruff, oh, I'm a loner. I have this team and they're my stooges or whatever. But no, They were his family as much as he was theirs, and it really hit hard. And even though he's not in it, he comes back at 25 during Fatal Attractions and has a big, great hug with Sam, apologizing for keeping him in the dark for so long. He promises no more secrets, and I think that's also where the panels you were talking about come from. Mm -hmm. I love it dearly. I can't, I legitimately can't get enough of that entire, like, six-issue stretch of cable-less comics where it's still all about Cable. <laughs> I just remembered, it took me, like, I've been like, I was like racking my, like, is it self-destructing? And I remember now, I swear I didn't look this up. It's been a minute, so I might actually get it wrong because the 90s stuff is, as always, like not my mm-hmm. most, like, in front of mind yeah. material. But I believe what's happened there is that Gray Malkin has been compromised by Magneto and Exodus, and Magneto has turned parts of it into Avalon, like his base, or something, okay. like, magnetically yeah. or whatever. So it's very specifically Beto and Sam's previous father figure betraying them by stealing the parts of their recently murdered new father figure yeah. who they love more. I don't remember exactly how it was. I think that they managed to get Professor, like, downloaded and bring him back yeah, to Yeah, they eventually the managed to save Professor, but the big climax is Sam taking the leap of faith and trying to cancel it using his own voice. Mm-hmm. And it works because and it works. they yeah. were right. Cable, that's who he trusted more than anyone in the world. 
Well, and then later in the onslaught period, when we get the Xavier protocols, we learn that in order to access the file on cable that Charles has prepared, the three people you need to have in the room are Scott, Gene, and Cannonball, yeah. oh, which God. I think is significant. So I also like Supernovas, but I don't really like it as a cable story. And it also has my personal pet peeve of being the line that divorces Cable and Cannonball as characters. Mm. They are no longer father and son. When Cable, quote unquote, dies in Supernovas, Sam yells, you murdered my best friend. And I'm like, one, your best friend's sunspot. Two, Two. that's your dad. Right. It, mm. Yeah, I love the carry run. I think that Chris Bocciolo draws a sexy Cable, oh. so I always appreciate that. It's a beautiful run. It's a really well-written run, especially that I'm not as into Legacy, but the Supernova's X-Men run, I love it. You know, honestly, for me, because I hadn't kept up with the Cable solo stuff, I was mostly confused. I was like, what the fuck is Providence? Oh, like, what is it's any of this? You know, <laughs> like When I read that, I was just like, where the fuck are we? I believe that's also made from, like, the wreckage of Grey Malkin, isn't it? It is, and it's made in Cable and Deadpool because for some reason Nicieza was like, this book is going to have continuity repercussions. It has to. I know! And he said on his episode of this show that he worked really hard to keep it separate from the X-Men universe as much as he could, which I think he mostly succeeded yeah. at. But then Mike Carey, because Mike Carey loves a continuity moment, mm -hmm. is just going to be like, Cable has this base in the ocean, they've got to use it, you know? <laughs> so he does. But it's fully wild, and then it gets destroyed in that story mostly, right? Like, yeah. I don't, after the Hecatomb, I think that's over. Yeah, the because that keys him up the Messiah complex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of Lady Mastermind's most dastardly yeah, moments. Sure was. So after that, he ends up taking Baby Hope into the future. The interesting thing about Hope as the mutant Messiah is that she kind of overrides the Ascani Sun thing. Yeah. That so, I hate the Ascani stuff. I, I need to get that out here. Oh, interesting. Like, Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, I don't like at all. Interesting. I don't like the aesthetics of it. Like, the bead necklaces and whatever. Not for me. Not my thing. <laughs> it's a very 90s future in the way that, like, Star Trek, the original series, is a very 60s future. Yeah. For sure. So, while I am frustrated that Sam and Cable's relationship has been, at this point, permanently undone, I will settle for Cable not being the Ascani son savior of everything and instead being Hope's father. I can live with that. That's the thing is, I think that what Hope does now, mm -hmm. now that Krakoa has happened and she makes sense because previously she didn't. Yeah. If I found a way to make her actually messianic because I'm sorry, like, Mutants are kind of born again now after AVX was like not really enough for me. Yeah. The way I see it is she tightens up all of the Rachel and Nathan stuff that's very confusing from the 90s. Because now if you think about it, what actually was the Ascani son's purpose and therefore by extension Rachel's purpose as mother Ascani was Rachel rescues Nathan and Nathan rescues Hope and Hope is the mutant messiah. It's a chain of Summers's participating in self-sacrificing attempts to protect someone vulnerable yes. who is the next link in this messianic chain, and then Hope is the final yeah. messiah. And I think that that works much better, particularly once the 12 gets completely fucked up, 
because that was Cable's whole messianic thing, right? Was like the, his, his thing with Apocalypse. Once you're not going to let him permanently kill Apocalypse and the 12 is one of the worst stories mm-hmm. the X-Men ever did, getting rid of it just feels like a good idea, right? Like, just like, no, we don't need that. We don't need that. And you don't need it because I like the Ascani stuff. Mostly, though, I like it for Rachel. I don't think it's essential to Cable. And it becomes less relevant for Rachel once they bring Rachel yeah. back. When it was the end of Rachel's story, I thought it was very, very cool. But, you know, I'm glad we have her back, mm-hmm. so it's fine, I guess. But it was a rough, the Rachel Gray period in the middle there, I truly found to be yeah. dire. Much like, I think, you know, Cable has had some dire periods. There was, like, the Scimitar, and oh. uh, when he started wearing an eye patch to honor Cyclops, because we thought Cyclops was there, dead. There was the time when he just got really big in Soldier X. yeah. X-Man, honestly, is mostly interesting as a window into Cable. Yes. Like, by, you know, Nate Gray as a contrast to Cable, I think is yeah. interesting. It's like, I'm your Twinkie self from an alternate timeline that was even worse than yours. And, like, I don't have the techno-organic virus, but my life is shit. Like, you know, I think that that... And I like that story where their powers start, like, interfacing in, like, a bad way. or so It's, like, strifes involved. I fucking yeah. forget exactly what happens. I like the idea that, like, reality won't abide both of them, kind yeah, of. Yeah, that's fun. I always find that kind of fun when it's, like, only one of us can survive. Mm-hmm. And that also is kind of what... I liked about the way that Jerry Duggan's recent series reframed Cable and Strife, yes. right? He made it really mythic and not a Scani son Christian mythic. He made it sort of older mythic, like the the kind of cycle of like day and night. I mean, all of the like the ancient religions have this kind of wheel of yeah. the cosmos kind of thing where it's like the light and dark in, in conflict forever, like Aryaman and Ahura Mazda or whatever, like that kind of thing. The idea that like cable is order and strife is chaos and they're just always at it again, <laughs> yeah. you know, in a million timelines. I think that's great. And, um, you know, as the resident Madeline Pryor obsessive crazy person, I really do love the idea of like her sons being these like mythic figures because I think that she and Jean are such interesting yeah. mythic figures in a similar way. I also love Strife just as a character. Same. I listened to your episode <laughs> on it, obviously. You know, and I was very neutral on Strife until Tony and I just, like, had a ball talking about Strife for three hours, and now I'm, like, a stan. Mm-hmm. Now I love my pointy son, and I want yeah. nothing but the I think Strife is the, like, ultimate Rob Liefeld design. It is all of his best impulses yeah. and none of his worst mm-hmm. ones, because, like, you get that really weird, hyper-realistic Strife in the Messiah-era run, and, like... Even it's not great, but even then, I'm like, hell yeah, he's got his blades, he's got his spikes. It's fucking strife. <laughs> he's pointy as hell. No, I mean, I love it because, and I fully don't think this was intentional because, I, I mean, it mm-hmm. wasn't intentional, but it all folds together nicely. I really love the way that Strife's outfit looks like a Liefeldification of Rachel's hound costume oh yeah wow it's like the spikes just get bigger and bigger and bigger i am the ascani son because strife thinks yeah. he is the ascani son right so there's just an interesting visual signifier there yeah no i love strife i would love for strife and maddie to have a chat at some point i would love mm-hmm. to write that call me marble but also <laughs> that actually brings me to i one of the cable solo stories that i did read way back when right there's two issues that i Definitely picked up back in the 90s because I really 
was excited about them. And those are the two issues where Cable meets Madeline because she's been resurrected yeah. in X-Man. And, you know, the Madeline of X-Man, I think she's actually really great in the early part of that book, but it goes awry pretty quickly. But those issues, I think, are really good. Yeah. They meet on the astral plane. She takes him to their house in Alaska that he's never been to since he was a baby when he was kidnapped from it. And she's like, this is the only place I was ever happy. And I was happy because of you. And she apologizes. She's like, you know, there's no excuse for what I did to you. And I regret it. You know, she's still, like, pretty evil. Like, they're still having, like, an evil... I'm your evil mom yeah. conversation. But like, she doesn't do the thing that villains often do where it's like, it was for your own good or whatever. She's like, no, honestly, like I lost my fucking mind and tried to kill my child and I regret that deeply. <laughs> like that was <laughs> fucked up and I apologize. But now we can be together. And then he's like, no, no, no. Sorry, evil mom. Like we're not going to do that. And then there's the later one during the 12. This is after the evil gene from an alternate reality. Don't worry about it. Has killed Madeline. Now Madeline's a ghost in the astral yes. plane. And she drags sort of Astrally, Scott, and Nathan to that Alaska dream space, Astrally again, to protect them from what's going on. And she's like, you could stay here with me. And, you know, she's again sort of like regretful only about what she did to Nathan. She's like, shut up, Scott. I'm not talking to you right now, which is great. Scott deserved it. Yeah. And then Scott's like, well, Madeline, if you really feel this way, come with us and help. She's like, I'm dead. What are you talking about? Are you paying any attention? I like the idea... Of them having a relationship in the present. I would really yeah, love I'm, that. So we have that Hellion solicit coming out. I am I know. praying something comes of I that. Know. I don't know if I love Maddie as much as you do. Few people do. <laughs> but I do love Maddie. I do love her, especially because I went through Claremont's X-Men a second time. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, how is she not around? Not how is she not around more? Because when she's around, it's often disappointing. How is she not used better? Because she's incredible. Yeah, I mean... So great. Such a great fucking character. Here's what I'll say. I want to write the Maddie Pryor story that I have in my Google Docs as an Mm -hmm. outline and like someone should call me at some point. However, if anyone but me in the entire world was going to write a Maddie Pryor story that I would feel secure about, it's probably Zeb Wells. Like Zeb Wells loves Inferno the way that I love Mm -hmm. Inferno. I don't think it would ever have occurred to me to use the Inferno babies in a run on the New Mutants. Like, that's a deep pull. He loves that story. It clearly imprinted on it the way that I did when I was young. And his initial arc of Hellions is so loving toward that character in the same way that, I mean, he does these visual callbacks to those Outback issues. I really just, Mm -hmm. it made me very emotional. And I believe that he will do right by her in the way that he's done right by a lot of characters who I think have been mistreated by the narrative, yes. particularly like Karma, Danny, now Kanon, who I think he has oh completely God, revolutionized yeah. as a character. She's one of the best characters in the whole lineup. If you're not familiar with what we're talking about, by the way, while I was on hiatus, which is very funny, the solicit for December came out and the Hellions solicit is that Maddie's back. It's a cover of, well, the variant cover at least is like Maddie all goblin queened out and Havoc behind her, like powered up. But covers lie. Yeah, the solicit is that they are finally going to have the discussion in public. What do we do with Maddie? I think that she will be resurrected. And I think that what happens next is an open question. And it's an open question that I would love to answer in the pages of a Marvel comic. So just putting that out there again. And now we can move on because this is not a Madeline Pryor episode. But you know what? She did give birth to him. So, you know, I think that she deserves some moments with Maddie in the Cable episode. She did birth him. And, you know, the thing that's really disturbing to me 
about gene absorbing Madeline's memories is thinking about stuff like Jean remembers being Madeline giving birth and stuff yeah. like that. All of these really personal moments. As much as, per the retcon, it was a violation of Jean for Sinister to create Madeline, it's also such a profound violation of Madeline for, like, her love affair with Scott, yeah. her experience of being pregnant, her experience of giving birth, all of that stuff to be, like, absorbed by Scott's new wife. I find that really yeah. distressing. <laughs> and I think they should talk about that sometime. They really also. should. I mean, I just want, well, I give away too many of my ideas for free on this podcast, <laughs> is what Anthony Oliveira told me the other day. So I'm going to shut up now. Anyway... You, I know, really like the Hopeless yeah. X-Force runs. So the Hopeless Cable and X-Force run is, like, my affinity for the Capullo Nicieza run aside, I think is the best, like, end-to-end run of X-Force. It's got the Domino Colossus stuff, which is fun as hell. Which is great. It's the most fun Colossus has been since 1990, really. It's got really good Boom Boom. It's got... Cable being like, hey, Forge, give me a new arm. And Forge gives him this really weird looking arm and it's great. And it's one of the only times I've genuinely really enjoyed Salvador LaRocca's art, which like more recently he's become disappointing. But like in that run, it works. I have to say, I love his stuff on Extreme. Like all of the Sage stuff in that, that's weird too. It's sort of like almost watercolory, mm-hmm. I think is just really gorgeous. I feel like he's somewhat like my favorite X-Men artist of all time on Uncanny, like on, on the flagship, is uh, Mark Silvestri. Mm-hmm. I love that Outback period. But I do feel like modern coloring and modern inks, I don't love Silvestri's art as much. Yeah, LaRocca's definitely an artist who needs flatter colors. Yeah, like I feel like the really complex colors don't accentuate his style. Yeah, it's extremely rough with Davis. I think he's received some of the worst treatment i think that that has leveled out i think people have figured out how to color alan mm-hmm. davis in a modern yeah. style like i thought that the giant size nightcrawler issue was pretty. yeah i thought it was good but like i don't know i look back at his excalibur work and i'm like well yes th- like just do it like that i know that like we don't do that anymore they do, but sing do it like, like that they used to like his new music yeah, just like do alan issue. davis like you used oh. to Make it just a beautiful pastel watercolor fantasy because that's Alan Davis and it's stunning. It has aged perfectly to date. There's no reason to change it up just because you think highlights look cool because we can do them now. Like, just calm down. Mm -hmm. Nobody needs a highlight on everything. Back in my day, we didn't have any shading on any of the colors and it was fine. Black was just blue (laughs) with lines in it. Anyway, what is it about the Hopeless Cable and X-Force that you really love most? I think it's got this really strong dynamic between the entire team of, like, we are adults and we respect each other and we will, like, deal with shit as it comes. And it's also got some really riveting Cable and Hope stuff with Hope being furious at Cable. I I was going to say, I think the Cable and Hope stuff in that is Mm -hmm. great. And feeds really nicely into the Spurrier run where their relationship really fractures. For me, I think my favorite thing about that Hopeless run, which I dipped in and out of, that was the same time that Humphreys was doing his, right? For me, I think my favorite thing was, and maybe I'm forgetting something, but I feel like it was the first time since the 90s that Cable and Tabby had been together in a book for an extended period. She is not as close with him as Sunspot and Cannonball are, but she's sort of the third prong of that era. She changes a lot under his tutelage. 
And it's nice to see them together mm-hmm. again. I think that Tabby is a character who has not had the most consistent characterization over the years. Frankly, it's because of Next Wave, which is a hilarious book. But Next Wave had a very specific take on that character. And I think that it took a while to ratchet that back a little bit. The Hopeless version was a good balance. Getting that sort of like, yeah, like influencer energy that I think is sensible if you're updating her in the sliding timescale. But also like balancing that with the woman who became like a real soldier Mm -hmm. under Cable. I actually thought that Ed Brisson's Tabby in the Krakoa New Mutant stuff was a good voice for her. Yeah, the one issue he did of like her journal where she was just trying to like cope with the profoundly fucked up things that had just happened. I was like, this is it. This is great. Yeah, and I liked when she was when like she just like abruptly reveals that she speaks Russian (laughs) because she like used to work for the mob or whatever. Like when she was like 12, like that stuff Mm -hmm. is good. I'd like to see more of her soon. I liked that Ewing threw her into the cable loaded one shot. That was nice. And Sam also, like having them together again was nice. But yeah, I think my favorite part of the Cable and uh, X-Force run is the like actual dynamic of Cable's like relationship with the universe now. He's getting these flashes of the future. He's precognitive now, yeah. He's getting these flashes of the future and he needs to stop it. And it's like, that's how you update him for the modern era. His future is done. He has already stopped the Ascani future from happening. Right. But he knows that the work isn't done. The work's never done. And being who he is, he can't stop. He's like his dad. He can't not be the soldier. He can't relax. Right. So him getting these precognitive visions, it's like, it's revealed that it's like kind of like an unwilling assault by hope and whatnot. Well, that I really like because it reminds me, it's a very gene moment, Mm -hmm. right? Like, which I like. Because hope is adopted. One thing, actually, we haven't talked about Tyler at all, which is fine by (laughs) me. But I think that to go back to the 90s for a second, Cable's relationship with his son, Tyler, is interesting because at least in the 90s material, I think that the strong implication is that Tyler is adopted, that he was Jen Scott's biological son, but not Cable's. And much like Jen Scott's sister, Hope, who's named Hope, by the way, (laughs) which is, I think, an interesting, they could have just done that. Didn't need to invent a new yeah. hope to do it. But Jen Scott's sister, Hope, is black, and they just refer to each other as, that's my sister. I think that the ideas, like, in the future of the clan chosen, the nuclear family is not what a family is necessarily, mm-hmm. right? And so having Cable adopt again, if that is indeed what he did back in the day, I think is a nice bit of synchronicity there. And what I like about it with Hope is that Hope is such a summons. Yeah. Actually, what she really is, is she's a gray. And that is what's fun, is like, she's not biologically connected to these people. She does have a connection to the Phoenix, and maybe they'll do something with that at some point and reveal that she and Jean are connected on a deeper level than we I know mean, about. Yeah, the closest but... we got was the Hallam bit, but yeah. Yeah, but I like the idea that if she is adopted, Cable's daughter, who is Jean slash Madeline's granddaughter, can't help but be someone who pushes it a little too far sometimes in terms of like ethical applications of her powers. I think that's really good. And I love the idea of like future hope being like, I have to torture my father in the past to improve the timeline. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do it like without any hesitation, you know, it's also like, that's very capable. Like I'm going to destroy my own future 
to save yeah. the world. Like that is that's his daughter to the point where she's willing to do it by hurting mm-hmm. him. I think is really cool. Yeah, and that's what really works for me is I also see it as I don't know if I don't really think Hopeless made this textual, but to me it's when Cable starts getting these visions, it's in text very painful for him. Mm-hmm. But the way I see it is he loves it. He loves that he finally has this purpose again, that his life, which has been profoundly directionless since the 12, like he's had hope and that was direction. But since he came back in. It is confusing that this story about Cable and Hope is written by Dennis Hopeless. So if you're listening and you don't understand what we're saying, that's what we're talking about. (laughs) Just to be clear, that's his name. Well, it's a pen name, but you get what I'm saying. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry. I just suddenly realized that we're saying Hope, Hopeless, Hope, 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 Hope. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah. Him getting these visions and him seeing, like, I have a purpose in the world again. I can do what I have always been doing because he is Scott Summers' son at the end of the day. And Scott is someone who, until the Krakoa era, never relaxed a day in his life. And I see Cable as the same way. He has never relaxed a day in his life. He comes back in the Jeff Loeb series. I don't remember the name of. Mm -hmm. And... Basically, right out of that, he starts X-Force because he's getting these visions, and it's, of course he's getting these visions. What else would he do? Yeah, and it was a permutation of his ever-changing power that I thought worked well, Mm -hmm. because I love a precog who is tortured by that. Like, it's a trope that I really do enjoy. I like whenever Destiny kind of dips into that trope of, like, she knows too much and she has to resign herself Mm -hmm. to it and all of that. It was also a beat that Betsy had a lot in the 80s before the Siege Perilous just like took away her precognition. (laughs) Although in the most recent issue of Excalibur, it seemed like she was having maybe like a precognitive dream like she used to. I enjoyed that. It would be very, very funny to me if like in the middle of Inferno, Betsy just mentions like, my precognition's back. And Charles is like, you're a precog? (laughs) She never met Charles until after the body. Oh, yeah. So he's never seen her do like a precog Mm -hmm. moment. So that would just be funny. And she's just like, yeah, no, did you, not, did you not know that? And he's just like, I have to go. I have to, I have a, I have to do something. Anyway, I digress. No, I liked that. And I liked the interplay it created between them. I like whenever we see like a future hope who has gone kind of awry. Yeah. I think that that's interesting because like that's what's hinted in Messiah Complex, right? Like that's what Bishop's afraid of is that like, we can't let this girl live. Yeah because she will become this great destroyer. So whenever we get an opportunity to see like the strafier side of hope, so to speak, I think that that's fun. Yeah. I really like the Cy Spurrier X-Force. I like a lot of it and it has the weird The hope hope. stuff is not my favorite. Yeah. Um, That's all I really have to say about that. (laughs) I I like the ending of them being like, really, we don't need you, Cable. Like... You've outlived your purpose. Yes, that's great. And I love the way he writes Betsy. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite Betsy's. Certainly probably my favorite ninja era Betsy. But yeah, the hope stuff is weird to me in that. I mean, I'm just like, quite honestly, anyone who isn't Grant Morrison writing Phantom X is always just kind of a hard sell for me. That character is just tough. Yeah, Spurrier like even repeated Grant Morrison lines and I was just like... I mean, I'm cool with that. Listen, no, it, like, it was play the, the best. do it. Yeah, but... I like Cy Spurrier's writing. <laughs> I need to preface. Like, I think he's I've enjoyed great. Way of X a lot. I love his X-Men Legacy run. It's one of my favorite like X books. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I'm a big fan. I love his Hellblazer. Oh, his Hellblazer Coda is one of the best comics I've ever read. So fucking good. But the hope stuff in that is weird. I do like again. Sorry to bring it to a place of Maddie, but I like the sort of supposition that Doctor Nemesis makes that the more times they clone Cable because of this virus or whatever yeah. that's inside him, the more it seems like he's losing himself. Like he's further away from the original. Mm-hmm. Looking at it. You know, because cloning has been such a big part of Cable's story with his mother and then with Strife. Yeah. It's sort of like, what does it mean to clone Cable? And in the Duggan solo, the implication was sort of that just like all clones of Cable are Strife. Right? Yeah. Like, not quite, but sort of. Or that Strife can, like, inhabit any of them. I mean, Strife can also inhabit Cable. He sure can. He gave him a goatee that one time. Yep, famously did, yeah. And then he found out he wasn't the real boy, and he flipped out and went to hell. He was like, I'll just die then, and went to be tortured by Blackheart in a very strange issue. I think that's the John Francis Moore. It's like Warpath in hell. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Love that run. Weird issue mm-hmm. if it's in that run. I forget exactly where it is because, again, X-Force, never my book is the thing. Like, it's yeah. never been my focus. I've still really not read past the Nicias and stuff. Like, I've read the stuff Cable's in, but then when X-Force goes on the road trip, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm out. Bye. See, I like the road trip. Oh, but Cable's not in it. Right. Yeah. So that makes sense that you'd be like, who cares? Also, I got a little peeved when Sam gets called up to the X-Men and they were like, this is such a big deal. You're finally where you belong. I'm like, No. No, th- right. that's his people. He's he's one of the outcasts. This is like, it's telling these people who like were the outcasts, were looked down on, that actually your ultimate goal is to come back to the clique. I don't like that. It feels like very specifically a repudiation of that post-Executioner yeah. song scene. Like, why is Sam going back to Xavier when one of the best Sam moments ever is giving that speech where he's just like, fuck you, Xavier, Mm -hmm. basically. In a gentle way, because that's the kind of guy Sam is. But, like, it's actually the same problem I have with Polaris. Mm -hmm. Much as the Chuck Austin run is a wide-awake nightmare in a lot of ways, I think that the post-Genosha Polaris that gets pushed into, like, a radical politics space is really interesting. And the second that Peter David gets his hands on her again, he just regresses her politically to the way that she was in the 90s. And I think it's taken until very recently for that to kind of change, for her to be a more layered political character again. And I think Sam, similarly, had developed a really interesting and different perspective by the mid-90s through his work with X-Force. And so to just suddenly be like, now you're the trainee on the X-Men. Like, it's just not... I don't think it served the character. Enormously. And he does eventually come back and it's just like, yeah, it wasn't yeah, a good fit. Yeah, because it just didn't work. Just didn't work. Yeah, and then it all goes real awry mm-hmm. because that last, that Ellis run on X-Force Ooh, is wild. Yeah. I don't know if you I, do, I haven't. I don't plan on it. <laughs> I read a little bit of his X-Men because I think it crosses over with Cable and... Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. I like Pete Wisdom. I do, generally speaking. Um, yeah, that's a bad run of X-Force. Yeah. It's just... The fact that they said to Peter Milligan, why don't you do something completely different, <laughs> I think is like indicative of how not great that run was. Like, what if you just use the name and do something else entirely? Do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. What did you think of... Teen Cable. I mean, the initial story I did not care for, but I really liked the Krakoa story. So I have not reread Extermination from the first time I read it when it came out. I would encourage you not to. Yeah, I don't plan on it because my opinion was <laughs> Kid Cable killing Big Cable is a cool moment. 
Pepe Larraz draws everything beautiful for five issues. It looks gorgeous, certainly. It looks stunning. And the original five were sent back, finally. That's all I remember. Thank God. That is how I see extermination. I'm going to leave it there. Yeah, leave it there. I love that that's the world you're living in, and I want you to continue to live in that exact world. My thing with it was always, I was just like, it doesn't make any sense to kill your future self. See, oh, see, how I saw it was Kid Cable is just a... I think Ed Brisson tried to write him as more of a Damian Wayne. Yes, he's just very much. a little yes. shit. He sees this big guy and he's like, you don't get it. You lost your way. You don't even deserve to be here anymore. I'm going to change my own future. I'm going to make sure I don't become you. I'm going to alter my timeline and not become you. Yeah. Right. Like, I get that that's the idea, but it always, to me, I was just like, that feels like a time paradox. It's very complicated. But I liked how Jerry tied it up. Yeah. And was like... Old Cable let Young Cable kill him because he knew Krakoa was coming. So it's like, it's going to be fine. Young Cable still is a shit who did that. But it makes Old Cable's role in that story retroactively make a lot more sense. What did you think of Jerry's book? So I mostly really liked it. I think towards the end, it lost some of its plot for me. But the beginning, I thought it was really fun. I thought he came up with a very good, like, way to make Kid Cable endearing without making him just feel like old Cable light. Mm -hmm. And specifically, the Ten of Swords tie-in, where he was just like, if the old man was here, he would have saved it. He would have fixed this. We need the other guy. Yeah, I should be the other guy. I loved that a lot, and it, like, it made... Kid Cable already worked for me by that point, but it was like, I could point to this and be like, this is, this is an important point for Cable because it's when he stops seeing himself as the savior of the timeline and starts seeing himself as someone who doesn't have all the answers and someone who needs to work with other people to get them. Mm -hmm. The Cable after Jerry's run wouldn't kill his old self. Right. He would talk to him. He would have a conversation. I agree. And I think that... You know, because I was so anti-Young Cable, Mm -hmm. and I was so, like, they're giving him a solo. I'm like, ugh. But, like, again, I wasn't super familiar with Jerry's work because I don't like Deadpool. Yeah. So I had read his Uncanny Avengers, a little bit of it, because I heard it was actually good, and I had really, really disliked the remainder Mm -hmm. Uncanny Avengers. Mm -hmm. So I was like, let's see, you know, how this turns out. And I do think that Jerry's Uncanny Avengers is good. I just don't like the premise of Uncanny Avengers, so that's just kind of a... Jerry's run was my favorite Uncanny Avengers, but I still yeah. wasn't, I wasn't huge on it. It's a little bit of a purse out of a sow's ear, yeah. right? Like, I just don't know that the premise is ever going to work for yeah. me. And so I had read that, and I had heard, you know, that he was very funny on Deadpool. I just never read it, because I don't like Deadpool. And then Phil Noto obviously does studying yeah. work. So I was like, well, you know what? I'll give it a shot. And then, of course, I got so sucked into this Krakoa era that I have ended up reading every issue of everything. You know, I ended up starting a podcast, so now I got to read everything. Yeah. I'm spending a lot of money on these fucking comics, I got to <laughs> tell you. But it became one of my favorite titles, which I truly wasn't anticipating. The way that he writes Scott and Jean and Emma yeah. in that book, and Rachel, and all of the stuff with Esme. Like, I just thought it was really, really great. Yeah, I will say the Esme stuff is, I think, where the book lost me. Like, it was cute for Kate oh, really? and Esme, but I think the last issue being, like, Cable has adult Esme, and that's, like, the future that he's working to protect now. I'm like, eh, I'm not, Oh, I'm not into that. (laughs) I really loved that. Here's why I liked it, because you can imagine how that came to be. Because after he dates Esme as Teen Cable, he has his whole love affair with Jen Scott, 
he has true love, he gets married, all of yeah. that. And you can assume that he and Esme didn't find each other again until much later in the in the timeline, yeah. right? Which I think is like a fun, like that's a story I'd love to read. Like I haven't seen you in 30 years or whatever, yeah. you know, like I just love Esme. I'm just like a big, I've loved Esme since the Morrison run. Yeah. I think she's such a fun character. I'm glad she's back. But I will say, because this is the elephant in the room, the big spiky elephant. For anyone who's listened to the Strife episode, Obviously, Kid Cable did not turn out to be striped. Yeah, I I also was a hundred percent on board that. As okay, as good. So I'm not crazy. Yeah. yeah, I was like, it's so, so. I actually, it was so funny after the last issue came out. I got lunch with Jerry, and I said to him, "Jerry, you got to explain this to me. What the deal is with the fucking arm? Because the arm bled, and that was like my big piece of evidence." He was just like. Honestly, I think that panel got flipped. I think it was supposed to be. <laughs> He's like, that happens sometimes. I'm like, that does happen sometimes. But God damn it. He's like, it was just supposed to be like I'm sucking my thumb in front of Apocalypse. That's embarrassing. It wasn't supposed to be like I'm bleeding. That's like a big deal. I was like, I'm, you know, that's why. He's like, but you know what? I'm glad you ran with it. I was like, well, thank you. Because I had a lot of fun with it. That made me laugh. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping, I mean, we don't, the, the future of the line, I mean, we know that the line will continue to exist in a very robust way, but like which titles are continuing after Inferno is something that's not super clear at the moment. Yeah. You know, it seems like a lot of things are going to be relaunching. We can tell that like X-Wars and New Mutants are continuing because the solicits told yeah. us that. But we know Hellions is ending. We know Marauders is ending. time with Hellions ending. Marauders is ending. Yeah, they didn't. Uh, yeah, they didn't announce. At least in its current form. Yeah. Like this is the thing. Like I think that what we may be seeing is creative teams moving around or like big relaunches. Yeah, I think Marauders whatever. gets relaunched, but just like because I'm neurotic about solicits, I saw that Marauders and Hellions both had extra pages, and none of the other books did. Yeah, so I was like, no, okay. fair, 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 fair. But so Sword is more in the Excalibur boat, where it's clearly reaching a climax, but what. What exactly that means for post-Inferno is unclear. I think Sword is really just getting started. It really is. I think, if anything, both of those books are more likely to do a relaunch Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. With Sword, I'm really interested to see how Ewing integrates old Cable into the mix there. Because I think that Abigail Brand was very comfortable with young Cable. And is going to be very uncomfortable with the X factor of like the real cable. Yeah, we already saw a little bit of that in Reloaded. Yeah. It was excellent. Yep. It was great. And I love the idea that she gave Teen Cable a nepotism appointment to like satisfy his powerful family. <laughs> and now the Ascani son is in her base, like telling her what he thinks she should do. And she's like, God damn it. Like, you know, that I think is fun. It is. And I'm excited to see where that goes. And I just, I mean, I just love Al Ewing. I love mm-hmm. everything he does. Yeah. And I am excited. I mean, you know, I love, I mean, I just love this line, like, right now. I'm, I'm hoping that Zeb will stick around in some capacity, but Spider-Man's a big fucking gig, so I uh, I will understand if he doesn't. I just yeah. am a big fan. But Al Ewing, V.I. Yeah. Teeny Howard, everybody, Jerry, Leah, like, there's so many incredible talents here. I can't wait to read Ben Percy's fucking Wolverine event. And I am not even oh my God, someone yeah. who ever wants to read a Wolverine event. But you know what? You got me. I'm intrigued. <laughs> like, <laughs> they really could give me just about anything. Yeah. Like, there hasn't been a book in this line besides Fallen Angels, which to go all the way back to the beginning of the episode when I said that I like when people just grant they can't all be winners. 
I have warmed significantly to Fallen Angels after Brian Edward Hill on Twitter was just like, look, it was bad. What do you want from me? Like, we, we learned I'm not good at fighting the X-Men. And I was like... <laughs> he, was like he was like, listen, Zeb turned it into something great. And I was like, I love that. That's a great attitude. Yeah. It's like when Ed Brubaker is just like, yeah, my X-Men's terrible. And I'm like, it is. And I'm so glad you know, because you're a brilliant mm-hmm. writer. Yeah. But sometimes it's just not a match. And not every story can be a winner. Overall, I really have enjoyed even the titles that I'm like not as crazy about. I always enjoy them every month. Like I'm having a great time. Yeah. And I think that Cable is a character with a with an exciting future. You know, which has always been the point of Cable, right? So, yeah. What I want to know is what does Moira think about Cable? Because Cable has knowledge of the future. Yeah, I'm very curious about that. And he talks about like Krakoa as though it's in the past for him. I think he does say that like they don't know the specifics as much. Right. They just know that Krakoa's like something big. Yeah. The first Krakoan age was a really important time mm-hmm. and yada yada yada. But it's far enough in the past that they don't have like firm records. But he may know enough that Moira is going to be unhappy that he's back is what I'm saying. And I think that would be interesting. Oh yeah. I am excited for that. I'm wondering now like could Moira even, like, try to oppose Cable coming back? Because that's Cyclops' son. Right. I would say there's, like, a dozen mutants who you can't get in the way of, and Cable's one of them right now. Like, you can fuck with Mystique. Yeah. No one likes her. Like, <laughs> you know? Like, you can't do that. You can't tell Scott that he can't have his kid back. You, you can even do it to Magneto, honestly. Like, yeah, half the Quiet Council you could screw with. You can't, it's like really Scott, Gene, Aurora. There's a couple people that you really just can't fuck with like Mm -hmm. that, or it's going to be a political problem for you. I think now is a good time to get into the listener questions. We got so, 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 so many going to try to do as many as we can, but we got so many Mm -hmm. because again, I announced this episode like a month and a half ago. So there's a lot of... (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> I'm trying to record in advance more often, so I need the questions to be coming in advance. But that means that, like, where I used to get, like, 10 a week, now it's, like, 30. And I'm like, oh, God, okay, I guess i got to curate this. I'll do my best. Dallas Taylor writes, Hello, Connor and guest. Having largely skipped over the 90s X-Men, my feelings toward Cable were largely meh until this era. With Jerry Duggan's recent series, I found myself really caring about Cable and wanting to see him succeed. With that, how did you feel about Duggan's series as a whole? Were you disappointed not to be validated and you're being strife-pilled? We already covered that, but, uh, you know, so we liked it. Lastly, what do you think Cable brings to the X-Men titles that no one else can, particularly in this era? As always, I love the pod and getting to learn so much from Connor's extensive knowledge of these characters I love so much. Best, Dallas Taylor. Well, thank you. What do you think that Cable brings to the X-Men franchise that no other character does? I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, so... It's very telling that Wolverine and Cable are the two X-Men characters that have had successful solo series and, like, continue to have successful solo series. They've tried Mm -hmm. with a lot of characters, and they don't seem to stick, but Wolverine and Cable do. Yep. And it's because both of them, beyond just, you know, the obvious, like, they're macho men from the 90s, they're popular, and their names sell, the X-Men are a franchise that has long identified with, like, a specific type of reader. That I am one of, like, a lot of queer readers, a lot of minority readers, Mm -hmm. a lot of people from marginalized backgrounds really align with the X-Men. And Cable and Wolverine, like, you can argue that they are kind of more the straight white dude fantasy. And for some straight white dudes, I can imagine that's true. 
But honestly, where I see Cable is this, like, view of decisiveness and a little bit of a removal from that soap opera drama that permeates the X-Men. Mm-hmm. When he's in a book, he narrows it down to not sci-fi necessarily, but, like, he ensures that the plot moves forward because Cable is plot by nature of who he is. You can't have Cable in a comic and just have him, like, hang around for a while because his whole point is being from the future and his being from the future informs whatever stories he's in. Yeah, what I would say is, like, if X-Men is very Star Wars kind of generally, Mm -hmm. then Cable is a character who, I mean, I mentioned the Terminator, which is obviously, like, an inspiration, right, for the character. But, like, it boils it down like that. It's like, now we're in a sci-fi action movie as opposed to, like, a space opera. And I do think that that makes sense as something that people respond to. I think that the characters who do best solo in the X-Men are characters that you can put into multiple genres. Yes. And Cable is one of those characters. Gambit is sort of another one where it has worked sometimes because you can put him into, you know, a fun caper kind of tale in a way that other X-Men characters don't necessarily do. They never fucking do it, but I really do believe that Storm is a character you could do that with if they were willing to try. They just never... Everyone's scared of writing Storm. That's how I see it. Yes! Yes, everyone is terrified of writing Storm. You can tell. The only person who wasn't scared to write Storm is Chris Claremont. Chris Claremont. Ever in history. Greg Pak tried his damnedest, and Al Ewing is finally giving it a go. And I thought Vita Ayala's one-off yes. Ten of Swords was yes. great. I mean, I love everything Vita yes. writes, but I would love to see Vita write mm-hmm. that character more. I actually thought that she was really great in her limited role in Children of the Atom. It was like a really, like, it's not the focus of the book, but I was like, Vita really has a good voice. Yeah, they really do. Love Storm. Would love to see a Storm solo Mm -hmm. that is properly pushed and marketed and all of that. It would be nice to see. But I get why they're hesitant because like X-Men solos are always a tricky proposition if it's not Wolverine or Cable. And Cable, like I often forget, like when I'm listing them off, I'm like, X-Men solos never work unless it's Wolverine because I kind of forget that Cable is even... Like, he's not really an X-Men character yeah. in the same way. Like, he's an X-Force character. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, he's kind of his own thing. And whenever he has been, apart from Supernovas, which I like a lot, I think whenever he has been, like, on the X-Men team itself, it's been a very awkward fit. Yeah. The 12 and Revolution era with Claremont and all of that stuff, I don't think particularly works. So he's just an interesting sort of liminal character in that yeah. way. Andre Hetu writes, yo, it's Andre. While I'm not living in Quebec, my dad's side of the family is from there, and it would mean the world if you could pronounce cable in one syllable. So I will try. Cable? Cable? I don't know. French-Canadian's hard. It's a weird accent. Cable. That was probably bad, but I tried for you, Andre. On to the question. Does Cable's future happen on this timeline still? If Moira couldn't save mutant kind while allied with Apocalypse, how do he manage to rule the Earth for thousands of years without her foresight? Why hasn't Kid Cable interacted with Apocalypse in a way that acknowledges the Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries? So I think that that's what that Ten of Swords moment was, was Cable acknowledging that, oh, it's my like ancient prophesied enemy and he just saw me sucking my thumb like a child, <laughs> which is like, right? But so does Cable's future happen on this timeline still? This is a really great question. So the Ascani timeline that existed prior to the 12 no longer exists. However, what Jerry's series stressed is that the future is constantly in flux and that future timelines are constantly changing. And so if you're a time traveler, you leave your timeline and when you go back to it, it might be very different from the one that you left. And so I think the takeaway is that a version of Cable's future happens. 
And Bishop's Future is the same way. Like we're always on sort of like a potential track to one of those in the same way that we are potentially, even though not literally because Days of Future Past turns out to be Earth 811, it's possible that we could get to that future. And that's why Nimrod is the inevitability, right? Because that's Days of Future Past. So how did Apocalypse rule for thousands of years? Like if Moira yada yada, in that version of the timeline, Homo Novissima didn't accelerate until later or whatever. Like the point of Moira's sixth life is to show us that sometimes it takes a really long time, but it always happens, right? So I think that we are to assume that a version of Cable's future has happened and will always happen, but that what that future is might change enormously. My other thought is just maybe it's because we only see what happens until Moira dies. Right. Maybe just... Even beyond that, Apocalypse comes back somehow because he always comes back. That's true because, yeah, that's so that's the interesting paradox point is that, yeah, Cable's future is after Moira's death, which resets the time. Yeah, even her, like, so, longest life doesn't hit Cable's future. Right. So, like, what does that mean? Like, does that future only exist as, like, a paradoxical might be if Moira doesn't reset? Like, the metaphysics of it are complicated and frankly don't worry about it Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to ask too (laughs) deeply about any like any time travel story particularly and this is something i really noticed doing the character file trying to track cables time travel chronology is really really difficult and i would not recommend it like just vibe Mm -hmm. honestly it's like not worth it just calm down and vibe Chuck Marsh writes, hello, Connor and Vishal. So one thing you can say about Cable is that he's a big boy, massively yoked, an utter unit, literally outbigging Colossus by three inches and a hundred pounds, and that ain't all techno-organic. Yet every time we look into him pre-adult, he's, well, average-sized. I mean, does Team Cable even lift? So when do you think... So when do you think that Cable took up competitive bodybuilding? Because that mass doesn't just happen, speaking as someone who had to put on weight for football as a lineman. Like, those years he was going to Harvard, did he just decide to get huge? Literally, right after he gets sent back at the end of Jerry's run, he starts lifting. Like, we didn't see it, but I think Big Cable gives him, like, a lot of weights and says, you need these. Yeah, you gotta get on this. Here's a Winstrol prescription. We're gonna make this happen. How much did this piss off Strife? I mean, it had to be disappointing when he found out he couldn't pass his cable anymore because cable had biceps bigger than your head. So now in between plotting baby food-related revenge and inventing live journal poetry before Web.0, Strife has to consume 12 pounds of lean chicken and figure out how to get huge. Do you think cable did as an intentional F you to Strife? (laughs) This is funny. Finally, since you love them, you seem like an arbiter for this question. Is Cable a ginge? I know baby Nathan was definitely drawn with his mother's fiery hair, but afterwards all brown. I know baby's hair color changes, but that still seems like a bit much. Could it be a dye job? Does anyone check Teen Cable's roots? I hope these silly questions find you well and give you a chance to talk about how hot you find the Ascani sun in my attempt at flat scan allyship, Chuck Marsh. Well, thank you, Chuck. What I would say is that I think cable is a redhead but in like a very specific like an auburn yeah. kind of way yeah. i think it gets dark pretty quickly as opposed to like maddie and gene have like a titian red thing going mm-hmm. on that's like very red so it's sort of like a mix of maddie and yeah. scott's hair colors red hair also though goes gray pretty fast like i have a lot of grays in my beard that used to be red so it tracks that he had red hair in some way because he goes gray prematurely Friend of the pod, Patrick Sullivan, who did the Mystique episode, was a ginge and now is a silver fox. So it happens. And he's my age. Mm-hmm. Like, so sometimes th- these things just happen. 
I love the idea of Strife, just because of like Strife's constant gay crisis being like something that I'm obsessed yeah. with. So like the idea of Strife constantly having to keep up with Cable's fitness routine because like he doesn't want to be less hot and less big is really funny to me as an idea. So I love the idea that like Strife's hopping on the Peloton because he like, you know, put on some water weight and Cable's looking snatched and Stripe is like, I have to be able to pass his cable when I take my helmet off. I think that's a Mm -hmm. funny idea. I like that a lot. Stripe is just in constant, constant boyfriend twin crisis with his brother clone enemy. And I think that in a very gay narcissistic way, the like, we are a mirror thing would extend for sure to like, how big are my packs? You know, this is also why he gave cable the goatee because he knew it looked terrible. And was like, I need to be hot cable for once. Please let me be the hot one. You're absolutely right. Derek Reuter writes, hey, O'Connor and guest, very excited to send my first question into my favorite podcast. Thanks for coming along with me every morning on my 7 a.m. jogs. Well, thank you for taking them because I'm certainly not. So I appreciate being dragged along for the ride. Cable is kind of the poster child for the big hulking masculine 90s comic style. So many characters from that era have fallen to the wayside. Why do you think Cable's remains such a constant and popular character? Is it only because of the Summers connection? Or is there something else about him that has struck a chord with fans? Thank you so much for bringing so much joy to my mornings, Derek. Okay, so sorry, Connor. I missed the question because if you can't tell, my power just went out again. The power just went out. I just noticed. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so fine. Vishal is sitting... Yeah. No, it's not fine. <laughs> Vishal is sitting in the dark. I just, we've had, so just so you're aware, in case the audio added on this episode is fucking weird, we are in technical difficulties hell yes. in this episode because my Wi-Fi at this Airbnb is on the fucking fritz. Also, it's like gotten dark in LA, so the mosquitoes are attacking oh, me, no. but I don't dare go inside because the Wi-Fi is better out here on the patio. Meanwhile, Vishal's power has gone out now twice, and he's now sitting in the pitch darkness just avoid staring back at me i can sort of see like is that just your glasses my reflection on the glasses yeah not ideal but we're gonna power through the question was the 90s extreme big muscle men guys like that they all fell out of fashion to some extent like the liefeldian kind of characters but cable has really endured why do you think that is do you think it's the summer's connection or something more i think the summer's connection is huge because they're the skywalkers Mm -hmm. right like they're the family at the center of the story so that's always going to be helpful it's very helpful to be attached to that family in some way that said i also think that it's because he's a very adaptable character. There are some characters that are just like 90s characters that you can't do shit with. You know what I mean? Because they're just always going to look like they came straight out of 1992. He is a character where as long as you keep some of the visual signifiers, like the glowy eye and like the metal arm and stuff, you can kind of redesign him however you want. And I think a lot of artists have. Yeah. And I think that he also just sort of became the standard bearer for that era, especially once characters like Gambit and Jubilee and Bishop fell off. He sort of was the last man standing in terms of like the 90s A-list. Mm-hmm. That's not more classic than yeah, that. Cable is shorthand for the 90s. And while the 90s have fallen out of fashion, he has even to a degree. He's ridiculed in text and out of it. Mm-hmm. He is the shorthand for all of that excess. They did it with Kid Cable for a little bit, but you can't have a cable show up and not signify that. I think Al Ewing did it best in the Reloaded issue because he's talking in these, like, action man platitudes and, like... So funny. It's hilarious. And it's 
deliberately hilarious. He's a hilarious character. I loved that Ewing added a new AI companion that was like Cable's sexy boyfriend, yes. the way that Belle is Cable's sexy girlfriend. Yes. Because that's the other thing about Cable is like, as Tony Oliveira said on this podcast, like Rob Liefeld was apparently cursed by a witch to never create a straight mm-hmm. character because Cable, the thing about Cable for me that's really enduring and interesting about him, contra to that 90s machismo, is that he's like a very queer character, I think. Yes. I mean, I don't like Deadpool, but the Cable and Deadpool stuff is so gay, and that's why I enjoyed reading it when mm-hmm. it was coming out. He's just like sort of a post-sexuality where 3,000 years in the future by, I guess, we don't have a word for it where I come from. Like It's that kind of vibe, and I find that to be intriguing about him. That, though, leads me into a question from Zach Jenkins of Battle of the Atom, who writes, Hey, Connor and Big V. He spelled my name wrong again, Zach. Just come on, put Zach. it out there. It's an O-R, Connor. Hey, Connor and Big V. I'm a Cable fan with a chip on my shoulder. While I like it best when the character is played straight, I understand when writers lean into the goofy 90s overkill of the character. Do you think that tonal dissonance is an essential aspect of the character at this point, or do you think writers would be able to pick a lane and just take the man seriously, Zach? And what I would say is I think that Cable has always been camp and that that's part of the appeal of the character. I'm not interested in reading a version of the character that doesn't play with the like hyper-masculine silliness at least a little bit. I thought that Reloaded struck a really good balance of like this character matters and you should like care about his adventure, but also we should laugh a little bit because he's a little yeah. silly. That's what I like in my X-Men generally though, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand where Zach's coming from here in that like when I read the the Reloaded issue the first time, I chafed a little bit at some of the, like, poking fun at Cable, because the way I see it is, it should never feel like the writer is laughing at Cable. It should feel like Cable is just aware of how he looks. Cable should be in on the joke. Yes, exactly. That's, I think, the key, and I don't like when... That really is what it is. I feel the same way about Gambit, actually. One of the reasons I really like Teeny's Gambit in particular, and I've been famously gambivalent, is that Teeny's Gambit seems very like aware of the role, like the character archetype that he's playing, mm-hmm. and plays with it in a way that's fun. He's like, I am the rakish romantic man. Blow on my dice, Megan. <laughs> he's having fun. And I think that when the characters who are very 90s or very tropey in that way are like having fun with it, they're just a lot yeah. more fun. But you want it to be something like that where the character feels like they're in on the joke because otherwise it does feel mean-spirited. And I don't think that's nice to fans of the character. Like, I do think that the way that Adam X was often trotted out as a joke is a little yeah. mean because every character has fans, you know, even characters that you may think are stupid. I don't think it's ever appropriate to be like, I'm going to write this character as a joke, but I think that it's always a good thing to write a character as sort of aware of the joke. Yes. I think that is a fruitful position with which to write a character who may be a little dated. Dazzler is like this too. Like you can't play Dazzler a hundred percent straight anymore. Yeah. But Dazzler's fun. Just make sure that she's not, this is what I was kind of getting at with Boom Boom earlier is Boom Boom is a really fun character if she's like, yeah, I am white trash. What about Mm -hmm. it? And like, is having a good time, you know, as opposed to like, gosh, how stupid is this girl? That's not the position you want to write it from, you know? Mm -hmm. Frankie Skula writes, hello, Connor and Vishal. Vishal is a dear friend and has been my guide into the world of the X. Hi, Frankie. Since the lead up to Honkspox, I am beyond excited to hear you both talk about Nathan Christopher Charles, Dayspring Ascani, Sun Summers. 
Cable holds a really interesting place among the ideological figures of mutant kind. He doesn't really have the same sense of ego as Xavier and Magneto, something that's helped him avoid their failings. What do you think Cable's ideology has to offer in this new age of Krakoa? How might his old students come into play, and what new characters could benefit from his mentorship? Thanks, Frankie. What do you think about that? I think that's an interesting question. So, I think the person who needs to learn from Cable the most is Beast, really. Yo, I mean, Beast needs to yeah, learn needs from, to learn like, from a, a whole lot of fucking people, but like, faculty of Beast's people. Beast's problem yeah. to me is that he has learned from Xavier and Magneto in different ways. Xavier was his mentor. Beast idolized him for a long time. And Magneto was his enemy, but Beast learned so much from him because of how much they've been in conflict with each other. You can't not learn from that. But Beast and Cable have been, you know, very on opposite ends of the map at almost every point in their lives. Mm-hmm. Hank has never had that one person there to be like, you need to be a goddamn adult. Like, you need to take responsibility for your actions, and you need to know that what you do has consequences for people who are not you. Mm-hmm. One thing that's always been interesting about Cable is his interest in seeing the righteousness of radical causes yes he led the clan chosen and they were a freedom fighting organization the case study really if you go back to the 90s is the way he regards tempo who is with the mutant liberation front but he can tell that she's a good person Mm -hmm. who has good intentions he's like the mutant liberation front is a bad group but your politics your radical politics are clearly coming from a good place And there is a place for you on our side. And unfortunately, Fabian got fired from the book before he could bring Tempo onto the team. But that was the plan. I talk about Tempo a lot in this podcast because I think since the X-Men vote, she has become a character people are much more conscious of and talk about a lot. But part of it is also like, I just think as a black lesbian former terrorist, she has a really interesting (laughs) point of view, right? So, you know, I just think that that attitude that Cable brings, he also brings in like Feral and Domino and all of these people who are not people that Xavier would have recruited, right? That is important in the age of Krakoa. I think that Cable's ability to see the good in people he doesn't necessarily agree with politically is a very important framework for the people of Krakoa. And so that, I think, is the lesson that really they should take away from him. And I, I'm interested, now that he's back as his adult self, in how he and his father will interact on that score. There's also there's also Providence. Like, they should, I don't know, acknowledge that Cable... That he had a, an island yeah, paradise he, of his he own He led a yeah. nation that did exactly what Krakoa did. They were like... We are not following your laws. Stay away from us. We'll stay away from you. Yeah. It was like Utopia and Genosha. It was a precursor to Krakoa, and it would be nice to acknowledge and that. unlike Utopia, it blew up because the Marauders were assholes. It didn't blow up because Cable Yeah, it didn't blow up because it failed. Right. Yeah, no. It blew up because Lady Mastermind caused trouble. It didn't, like, <laughs> and a Shi'ar bioweapon landed. It wasn't because, you know, of hubris or anything. In that sense, it's more like Genosha, where it's like Cassandra Nova just fucked that up. It seemed like it was going fine until she yeah. turned up. <laughs> yeah. I think all of the 12 really like have a lot to learn from Cable. I think Cable is a character that, while you don't need to play him like as ultra like straight, you obviously need to bring the camp into it. You should also acknowledge that 
the perspective he brings to the X-Men is one of, like, he has seen what works and he has seen what doesn't work, and he might not have all the answers, but he knows which ones are wrong. Jared Williams writes, Good evening, Connor and guest. Thank you so much again for answering my previous question on the Sync episode. By the way, the fact that you've replied to me here and on Twitter confirms we're friends in my mind at this point, LMAO. Okay. <laughs> well, that's funny. I do try to engage with everyone. Jared says, I have a two-part question. Why is it that all of Scott and Jean's kids are queer mutant icons? X-Van may not have had a male romantic foil, but he reads pretty bi to me. I didn't like the Age of X-Van storyline, but I thought he was pretty hot, even though I know you don't care for long hair. Rachel is the main X-Men lesbian alongside Karma, despite never officially coming out. And Cable, whew, don't get me started. The tension between him and Strife, along with the series basically about Cable and Deadpool dating. The second question is when Madeline eventually does come back. Yes, I'm fully on the agenda now, LOL. Apart from interacting with Alex, do you think she will reach out to Cable? I feel like when he was a teen, that would have made for an interesting story beat. Thank you so much again. Love the pod and looking forward to more. So I love both these questions. To answer the Maddie question first, because I am me, I do deeply wish that Maddie had had an opportunity to interact with Teen Cable. And here's the thing about time travel. You can always do it. Yes. Maddie has reached out to Cable in the past. We talked about this in his solo in the late 90s. So they had a good chat there. I would have been really interested to see Teen Cable talk to her because it would have been before like he has much less of an idea of her. You know what I mean? So it would have been interesting. I don't want to get into too much detail because, again, I have a lot of ideas about Madeline that one day I would love to write. You know, and maybe that's arrogant of me to think that that could ever possibly happen, but you never know, right? But that aside, I'll just say, I think one of the most interesting things you could do with Madeline if you are redeeming her in the way that other villains have been redeemed in the history of the X-Men is to figure out her relationship with Cable, her relationship with Jean, and their individual relationships with Cable as his mothers who are identical twins. I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff you could do there that could be very unique in terms of how a family dynamic could be. So I, I think that she should at the very least if she gets to hang around. Yes. As for the queer icons thing, I've joked that like, it's that Scott and Jean are like, so the straight high school sweethearts couple, like symbolically, like, you know, I don't know how much they are actually, but symbolically speaking, it makes a lot of sense that their sublimated queer sexuality just like goes to the next generation. I think that's kind of like a funny mm-hmm. idea. Like Rachel is just like lesbian Scott in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> like It's just very like, you know, I mean, she got Jean's hair, but she's very much a Scott type. I just think that there is something a little bit like inherently queer about like the child who comes back to the past from the future. Cause that's always, they're always out of place, right? Mm-hmm. Like we talked about this a lot in the Rachel episode. It's sort of like, where do I belong in this family? Am I really your child or do you not acknowledge me? There's always like kind of a queer meeting yeah. there, right? So I think that that lends itself to that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Michelle? Well, on the little like child out of place thing, I think that Rachel's like, breakdown at discovering that Cable's going to be born and is going to be her parents' perfect Mm -hmm. child. That is a reality. That's about as, yeah, that's about as... And I think it's very funny that what she eventually got was Cable, who is a whole different mess. Uh Uh-huh. And then she made Strife. She did (laughs) make Strife. (laughs) 
that is one thing that I really like my one complaint about Jerry's book is I loved Teen Cable and Rachel's relationship with that. And I would have loved an acknowledgement that Mother Ascani, who created Strife in the first place, was Rachel. Yeah. Because I think that that's really funny. I get that it's so convoluted in terms of like all of that continuity that maybe we don't want to touch it. But I just think that's so funny. It is. And on Cable specifically, like, I definitely see a like, I don't know. I'm, the way my queerness comes about is like, I'm very into like masculinity and stuff and like the machismo mm-hmm. and that specific over the topness that Cable brings. I mean, same. So I get it. I can't see him being straight. Yeah, no, I'm like, I've seen him down at the Eagle, babe. Like, I know exactly <laughs> who that man is. And like he's it's not even like for him, it's not even like a crisis. He doesn't have that. He's just no. Like, OK, to me, like in my like lizard brain, you can't be that masculine and hot and not suck dick occasionally. Yes, that's just where I'm at with it. Mm-hmm. That's just like that's mm-hmm. that's where that's where I'm at. If I didn't have the voice of a Catherine Hepburn character, perhaps I <laughs> <laughs> I give off that vibe myself. Unfortunately, <laughs> I do not. But it's fine. You know what? I love being me. Actually, one of the things that's been really refreshing about this podcast and having to edit my own voice for hours on end. If you listen to the first couple episodes, I kind of butch it up a little. I'm like, hello, welcome to Cerebro. It's me. But eventually I just was like, you know what? Fuck it. This is a faggoty podcast with a faggoty host. And we're just going to deal. Nice. Jack Barker writes, hi, big fan of your podcast. Really enjoy the deep dives into the mutant side of the Marvel Universe. What was the deal when Cable was renamed Soldier X in the early 2000s and was in the middle of political (laughs) conflicts all over the world? I remember reading one issue where Cable's hanging out with the real world Peruvian communist group, The Shining Path. Yours sincerely, Jack Barker, sent from my iPhone. Thank you, Jack, for dashing that off on your iPhone. I appreciate you writing in. Don't worry about it. It truly does not matter. You never have to think about Soldier X again as long as you live. I Googled Soldier X while writing the character file because I had forgotten about it. Yeah, all I remember is Igor Cordy drew it and Cable got big. Cable was huge! Like, I I need to stress this isn't like an artistic liberties with Cable thing. I mean, Cable went like giant man and got large. Thomas Crawford writes, Hello, Connor and guest. Thanks as always for your great work. The show continues to deliver laughs and incredible insights each week. You're all so nice. I feel like It's embarrassing reading all the compliments, but I do it anyway. Now that we've seen the adventures of young Cable, I'm curious if there are any older Cable stories where, similar to Moira, Cable's role is recontextualized, knowing now that he lived through the early days of the Krakoa era. Excited to hear your thoughts. Best Tom Crawford. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually. Like, everything surrounding Hope, we have to now rethink. Mm -hmm. Because he met Hope when he was a teenager and saw what she did on Krakoa, before he ever encountered her as a baby. So he knew exactly what he was protecting this entire time. And I think that's cool. My thought is honestly, maybe Hope wasn't a messianic figure in his future. Maybe he just personally knew what she did. Yeah, and so he just, that's how he pitched it yeah. to people. You know what I mean? Like, Because yeah. it doesn't make a ton of sense that Hope would have impacted the Ascani time. Yeah. I honestly thought that they just didn't have any recollection of individuals of, like, the present day. Right. No, exactly. Same. It's also, if you go, like, way back now, the whole thing with, like, Sam as an external, I mean, that just doesn't make sense. So you got to throw <laughs> That's, like, 
that's the cable version of like Moira with the legacy virus is the first human to get the legacy virus. Yeah. You just have to be like, I guess the golem was lying to herself or something. Similarly, like, why did Cable believe that Cannonball was an external when he knows that he isn't? Don't worry about it. Other stories, though, like the way that he deals with the legacy virus stuff, the way that he deals with the decimation, like the fact that he knows that hopefully everything's going to turn out. Because the thing that I think Jerry's series really emphasized was that the future is in flux. And so Cable leaving the future, knowing what happened in the past, doesn't guarantee that it's going to happen exactly that way. And by moving to the past and doing these butterfly effects, there's actually that fun Cable and Deadpool one shot at one point, like split second or whatever it's called, where we see that by like traveling through time with Deadpool, Deadpool then saves Cable's life like six times at like key moments in the history of Cable that it's like all retcons, but it's funny. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you see how you can shape your own future. Yeah. Because I do think that Cable's story is not meant to be about predestination. It's very much about deciding, and this is also sort of what Hope's story is kind of about. It's also what Bishop's story is about. I mean, Fabian on his episode said that he thought Bishop was a ripoff of Cable, (laughs) but basically the idea that the time traveler, again, this all goes, it goes back to Terminator, right? Twist of Terminator, to spoil a movie that's older than me, if you've never seen the original Terminator and you really worry about spoilers, like skip ahead 10 seconds or whatever. John Connor sends Kyle Reese back in time because he knows that Kyle Reese is his biological father and that he needs to seduce his mother in the past. Like he sends Kyle Reese to protect Sarah Connor because he knows somehow, it's not explained to us, but I won't be born to be the Messiah in the future if my mother is A, not rescued from the Terminator and B, doesn't fall in love with this man. So I have to send him to the past to be my dad. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. It's all you zombies by Heinlein. It's, there's a lot of sci-fi stories that are like that. And I think that that's some of the most interesting, like time travel stories really hurt my head if I'm being honest, but I think that Cable is at his most interesting when he's basically saying that fatalism is stupid because you can always change the future. And I think that that makes him an interesting contrast to Moira, who is extremely fatalistic, which, you know, I've said this many times, but the fact that her name is Moira, I think Hickman, you know, keyed into that. Yeah. That she and Destiny are both characters who think that basically the future is inevitable and it's going to shape out exactly the way that it's going to shape out, provided yada, 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 yada. Destiny is always moving pieces into place. And Cable is sort of doing, like Destiny's doing that from the past. Cable's doing that from the future. I'd be interested to see Cable and Destiny talk if she comes back at the end of Inferno. Because they haven't ever talked, as far as I can remember, because she dies in the Muir Island saga. Actually, actually, it's Destiny who tells Scott and Jean that baby Nathan is at the orphanage in Nebraska right before Inferno. Yeah. So she sends them to rescue him. That feels like the kind of continuity point that could really be teased out Mm -hmm. now that there's all this other stuff. Yeah. Any story where you go back with Cable now, knowing that he at least knew that Krakoa would exist someday is interesting. And does it all work perfectly? No, but that's fine. Mike Layton writes, hello, Connor and guest, first time writer and big old flat scan. This is easily the best X-Men fix I get outside of the comics and other official media. The research, editing, conversations, and flow are top tier in my honest opinion, even as a relative outsider sticking his toes into fandom every few years. 
My first exposure to Cable was the 90s X-Men cartoon, but witnessing him through the comics was absolutely wild. I'm a sucker for a good future story like Marvel 2099 or Days of Future Past. My fascination with Cable, though, is that unlike Bishop or Rachel, characters I honestly love from what I've seen of them, Cable seems to have knowledge of the actual future of the Marvel timeline. I could be wrong about this. I haven't gone too deep into X-Men lore outside of this podcast, but do you feel this should be explored more? Aside from Cable having that 90s appeal, is there a reason why Cable's eclipsed his half-sister, Rachel, and Bishop? What works about Cable in your mind? Thanks and continue the fantastic work. We sort of covered that already. Basically, the question that you're asking is like, is Cable as a precog in this way something that they should explore more? I think that the last issue of Jerry's Cable solo raised that question in a really interesting way. I would love to see more of it. I think you don't want to rest too much on it, which is why it's helpful that like Booster Gold over at DC, Cable's future is far enough in the future that anything he knows about the present is going to be you know, it's like us talking about Cleopatra. Like we have to guess a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know? I think that that's helpful because I don't think, like there's a reason characters like Destiny are hard to use in your story, right? Because they are a little too omniscient. That's why like precogs tend to get written out or like Betsy, they just forget how to be precogs at a certain point. Oh, the power's back. (laughs) Look at your beautiful face, illuminated. That was funny that's a first for cerebro is like me just talking to a vague glasses reflection in a dark room it was a strange experience for me i kept like looking and being like where am i where am i right so yeah i mean i i don't think you want to lean too heavily on it because then it becomes harder to use him because then it becomes a continuity problem of like why did cable do this if he knew that in the future like and so you don't want to lean too hard into it but i think things like him saying the first recoan age was like a great golden age of mutant kind that's great yeah Because like, what does that mean? And you know what? Don't have him explain it any further than that. That was all we needed to hear, I think. I think the reason that Cable got so much more popular than Rachel, like obviously there's the 90s appeal. There's the fact that he's a big dude in a time Mm -hmm. when big dudes are very popular. And Rachel was a vulnerable woman in a time when vulnerable women didn't sell comics. She also was off in Excalibur, which was just not as big a book to the general public. It's that Cable was a leader and mentor. Mm-hmm. And people love that. I love that, so I'm a little biased when I say this, but, like, people love seeing the leader and mentor come back. It's very refreshing. It's very narratively entertaining. It works. It's why they've resurrected Xavier, like, God, 60 times, too. Which I don't think they should. It's why they, they don't do. let Aunt May die. Right. It's like they don't want to get rid of that character. And so Cable is another one who has died, like, seven times. Mm-hmm. But always comes back. Because there's an appeal to Daddy's home. Yeah. In terms of, like, why he triumphed over Bishop in the end, I don't think he did until they made Bishop evil. Like, I really think that Bishop had won that war of similar character archetype by the end of the 90s and then just got written out basically god damn it bishop's only really bouncing back from that now and it's similar to how rachel was written out of the story for a long time you know so like cable has had a longer continuous publication history than either of those characters which i think helps yeah and again like the summer's family connection yeah you know bishop is an outsider in a lot of ways he's a character of color he doesn't have family connections in the present besides maybe storm but it's like yeah. complicated right 
Like if your most profound connection in the present is with Gateway, who doesn't talk. Yeah. It's not as rich for a story as like Cyclops is my dad. Like, you know, there's just something very naturally story generating about that. But unlike Rachel, who is a somewhat gender non-conforming female character who's prickly and traumatized and whatnot, Cable's like a badass dude. So I think that that, I think that's why he edged out those two characters, basically. John Moreshi writes, Hi, Connor, and tremendous guest. One of the cool things about the Krakoa era has been the way disparate elements have been brought together with overarching explanation in the narrative. Like all of the robots, sentinels, cyborgs, etc., always trying to kill mutants are actually part of the destiny of mutant kind. Magneto kept trying to start mutant islands because Moira told him about her plan. The 12 wasn't terrible. It's a mutant circuit. And my personal favorite, Proteus and Legion were conscious attempts at all powerful mutants, not just the same idea twice. Along these lines, what do you think of a time travel reveal for why time travelers like Cable always seem to focus on the present day? I mean, why is Bishop here too? And didn't this start with Rachel Summers? Maybe we could tie in the time-displaced 05. I know they explained why they couldn't go back, but then it was retconned, I think, and uh, don't worry about it. How would you tie these time travelers together, Krakoa-era style? Are there other examples of repetitive happenings that would merit a larger narrative? Thanks to the pod, I've been listening since the jump, and it's become the one I look most forward to. I've always wished my friends could dig deep into the X-Men with me, so I'm really grateful to sort of have that now, kind of, in a way, John. In part, it's just like, that's the nature of science fiction with time travel, is it's always our era that mm-hmm. is the most significant era, right? Like, Star Trek does that also a lot. Yeah. But I think that in part, it's the idea that the 20th century into 21st century is when mutant kind blossoms, right? Like after centuries of like, well, here's Celine, here's Apocalypse. Like there's individual characters around. Yeah. Amanda Mueller is like doing her thing. Again, end of end of Jerry's run. I've probably referenced this like five times now, but they know Krakoa is a thing. Or Cable at least knows that right. Krakoa is a thing. And Krakoa is now. So... They came a little bit early, but if you want to do that headcanon, they were aiming for Krakoa and got a little early. Yes. Actually, honestly, a lot of the Cable and Strife stuff is like they're both trying to secure a power base in the past to impact the future. And it was always kept very vague. But if you think of it as Cable and Strife both trying to establish a position of power in advance of Krakoa, then their power struggle makes a lot of sense in that respect. But, like, the reason that Rachel came back to this time is because she sent Kate Pride back in time to this moment because this is the moment that the mutant question becomes something on the political stage, and Senator Kelly was the first real political figure to be addressing it in that way, and so his assassination was going to be of enormous significance. So it has to do with the fact that the children of the atom are exponentially increasing after the advent of nuclear power, which does seem yes. to have something to do with how many mutants on average activate. Last question, Logan Holmes writes, hi, Connor and distinguished guest. I have a question about my favorite and possibly the only decent father figure in the Marvel universe. What the hell is the deal with his arm? Before the retcon that he was Nathan Christopher from the future, it was a cybernetic prosthetic. Post-retcon, I always thought the implication was that he was lying to hide the fact that it was just T.O. infected. But now he can swap out arms at will and could ever since he was a teenager. Where is the virus contained then? Just his shoulder? And why, if it consumed his entire arm, does it seem to do no lasting damage after he recovers from the times when it spreads further into his body? I'm no slouch on continuity, but I'm lost here. Looking forward to the episode, Logan. 
so my hot take on this is that the metal arm is iconic, so it's just always going to be there and you shouldn't overthink it. But yes, we have been told many times that he uses his telekinesis to keep the techno-organic virus up at the level of his shoulder as much as he can. And that I guess it ate away like the arm yeah. that was there and that he's using a prosthesis for that yeah, reason. Yeah, the post, um, I guess the hopeless Cable and X-Force run and beyond that, it is like just a prosthesis. He's There is some yeah. infection, but he has a full prosthetic arm. Because again, that's like the reason he's not an Omega level mutant is that his telekinesis is constantly holding the virus back inside his body. And they've retconned that a bunch, but I believe that's the status quo again. So basically, don't worry about mm-hmm. it. It's just a cool prosthetic. Vishal, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share on cable before we start to wrap? I just also want to bring up that before X-Force started, before I fell in love with Cable, my favorite X-Men comic was the one where Cyclops sends Nathan to the future because I am always on goddamn brand. (laughs) And I feel like I needed to say that during the Cable episode. It was interesting when I was doing the character file, like to realize, because like I was always aware of this, but to figure out like, when does Cable appear? When does baby Nathan disappear? When does the retcon get put together? Like, that is just interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I like seeing how all the pieces fit together. That story is so wild, though. All of the stuff with, like, the Ascani who travels back in yeah. time and, like, has to tear herself to ribbons to return to the future with the Ascani son is fully wild. Yeah, the whole arc is bizarre, but then you get this really, really, really emotional monologue by Cyclops as he's, like, mm-hmm. staring at his son and understanding that he has to say goodbye, and he is fully choosing to never see this son that he loves to the end of his life ever again. Right. He makes the decision, and he knows it'll haunt him for the rest of his life, but he knows that there isn't another decision to make. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Chris Claremont, even when he's writing absolute nonsense, he can write the hell out of soliloquy. Sure can. I mean, I would say nobody does it better. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree you with know. that. Well, Vishal, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online, follow your work, etc. So you can follow me on Twitter at vgola87. That's where I will tweet like once a week about some random thing that I thought of because I'm very bad at tweeting. But (laughs) sometimes I go like 30 in a day, so you might get lucky. Beyond that, I am an editor for ComicsXF, that's ComicsXF.com, and Comic Book Herald, ComicBookHerald.com. Both of the sites are places that I am personally proud of the work I do, and sometimes I write for both of them as well. I am fairly proud of a review I wrote recently for Comic Book Herald on Nightwing, the current Nightwing run. Happy with that. I am trying to write about stuff for Comics XF, but going through burnout, sometimes it happens. I'll get back in the swing of it soon enough. I also sometimes write and or talk about wrestling at Comics XF, so you can catch me there if you care about wrestling. It's pretty cool. I'm very out of touch, but back in my, again, this is like me showing my age, but if you were a little gay boy in the 90s, like the Sable Jacqueline feud was (laughs) primo WWF Divas content. So I do sometimes just peek in and see what's going on. I mean, I like that the ladies all fight now. It's not just like Jacqueline and China. I'm ivory. Like they can all actually really fight. Anyway, 
You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes at Cerebrocast.com along with a link to the Discord server, the Patreon, the merch store, and anything else you might need. You can email your questions to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. If you have questions on Siren, Skin, Celine, or Magic, the email inbox is open. Hit me up. I'm really looking forward to continuing season two with all of you. I appreciate you all so much. I, the number of messages I got during the hiatus of like, we missed the show, which is like really, it was just really heartening. I really, I appreciate all of you. And I'm so glad that we're all here. And hopefully this is only the second of many seasons of Cerebro to come. There are a whole lot of fucking characters in this franchise. So uh, I am going to do my best. Join the conversation with us on the Discord. Don't bring any bad vibes. Join the Patreon if you want to have ad-free episodes and some bonus episodes. And until next time, thank you for listening and bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 